0: real conversation conversation. and some hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs, and guns. guns. Giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey, welcome back everyone. Nathan Rome is with you. We are coming up to Remembrance Day. And I've got a number of guests lined up to talk about service and sacrifice. We are gonna talk about their experiences in training and deployments, the memories, the people, and the impacts of service. To help me, I have co-host John Simpson here. John is a US Army veteran with over 40 years of practical experience. He's an instructor with SniperCraft Incorporated and a research historian who has authored several books on the fundamentals and advanced tactics of marksmanship, and sniper skills. John was also previously on this podcast in this season, so season two, episodes 23 and 45. And our guest today is Sue LaRue. Sue enlisted in the US Army in 1981, and then joined the 82nd Airborne in 82, so nice and easy to remember, and took part in the 83 invasion of Grenada. In 84, Sue joined the 75th, Ranger Regiment Recon. He's also spent some time with the French Foreign Legion. Uh, And then over the next 20 years, he was in several special forces groups where he retired in 2016 with the first special forces command acquisition for weapons, night vision, and ammunition. So welcome John and Sue. Good to be here. Thank you. Yep, good to be here. I hope I got all those years right. Everybody comes in here with such a list of accomplishments, so um, I I ch- have to shorten it a bit because I want obviously the guests to talk about it. But yeah, you guys always have just the most amazing list of things that everybody's done. So hopefully, I got those correct. Oh, you did. Yeah, Yep. you got those. That, <laughs> that was. Uh,
1: I can't believe I'm that old already. You know, we're not supposed to live this long, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or we would have taken better better care of ourselves. I guess.
0: Well, you look like you're doing all right. You're, you look healthy. So um, we wanna, I just wanted to start by asking uh, about your name because Sue's your nickname. So can you just explain, uh, kind of like we were talking off air, but can you explain for the, the audience so they know where the nickname comes from?
1: Yeah, it comes from a, a Johnny Cash song, you know, The Boy Named Sue in 1963, which is the year I was born. Uh, I would my my dad would carry me around, and he looked just like Johnny Cash. So they was they would say, uh, you know, his friends would say, "Hey, there's your there's your boy named Sue," you know. So uh, that that kind of stuck as a nickname when I was growing up. But my older sister would call me Petunia, you know, for Petunia Pig because of my my uh, table manners or the way I ate at the dinner table. <laughs> And uh, she would, when it was time time for dinner, she would use the other nickname. She would call me a Suey, 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 like, you know, yeah. calling a pig, you know. And then uh, I got into the military uh, in the 82nd Airborne, and uh, there was a couple Rodneys in the platoon, and we worked with the British Army, and a, and a Rodney or a Rupert was kind of a, a, a lieutenant who couldn't find his ass with, you know, <laughs> with both hands, so uh, so i I. I wouldn't answer to the name Rodney and uh, the first sergeant uh, name was Kermit short. He, uh, put me in, he, he made Sergeant major of the battalion I was at in the 82nd he stood me up in front of the battalion and, 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 uh, he, he, beforehand he had made me choose a nickname because there was three Rodneys in my platoon. And he said, okay, what, what are we going to call you? And I said, ready just call me Sue, Sue LaRue. Everybody, everybody knows me as that. And, uh, that stuck. He told everybody to, from now on my my first name was sue <laughs> it stuck like that and, and i i chose the spelling in the french foreign legion you know every, everybody asked me to write it down and i used to spell it s-u-e and then i in the french foreign legion i found that there there's a, a word s-e-a-u-x which should i was actually pronounce in french it is so mm, okay but uh it means means it means buckets you know in uh, in french so i was like uh, everybody called me Buckethead, so i might as
0: well just, uh, use that that name, well and hey it just so, it kind of flows right into the last name so it actually worked out really good yeah. and yeah. i was saying better yeah. than calling you petunia across the battlefield
1: <laughs> oh definitely definitely yeah that wouldn't that wouldn't have went well back in
0: 1982 yeah <laughs> um maybe we can start kind of talking about some of the family and and where you're from um, so if you want to kind of take us right back to the beginning and tell us just about yourself and growing up.
1: Yeah, I was born in Colorado, uh, and my, my, uh, my family, there used to be an X on the end of my name, you know, and, uh, my family had come down through Canada anyway. So, uh, uh, we, we my family lineage had gone all the way back to what, uh, the Canadian or the Canadians or the British call the seven years war, we call the French and Indian war. And, uh, mm. I guess uh, before the American Revolution, my family had left and gone to Canada. And they, they, they left uh, northern Pennsylvania, southern New York, went up into Canada, and then came back through decades later, down through Michigan and into Kansas and Colorado. So uh, my my grandfather, I th- I'm pretty sure it was my grandfather, took the X off the end of the name. He just got tired of signing it, you know, with an X on the end. And uh my, my dad's nickname in uh, Vietnam, you know, he was drafted and fought in Vietnam, but uh uh they he was actually in the military when they took the X off the name. So his nickname was X. They called him X, you know, like with a lost X or something like that. So <laughs> that, that was a pretty funny story. But uh I grew up in Colorado and uh and West Texas. My mom was from West Texas, so I I I uh we, my, my dad had a farm and, and, uh, and then he lost that farm and we, we traveled all over the Rocky Mountains from, uh, from Colorado down into, uh, West Texas, a real small town. Uh, so that's uh, actually, it was a great way to grow up for my special forces career because we were a mm-hmm. hundred miles away from the nearest hospital or, or, uh, any kind of, you know, hardware store or something like that. So we, we, we learned how to improvise and, you know, Fix fix what we needed to do or or, uh, conserve our groceries or whatever we had to do just growing up that way. It was one of the last places where they had, you know, homesteaders that come in and just take the land and convert it into agriculture. Mm, Okay. But uh, bad years, everything, we lost that. And I ended up, my dad worked in uranium mines in New Mexico, Gallup, New Mexico. And then uh, my last, my senior year, I went back to my, my heritage up there where my grandfather was from, and I graduated out of uh, Roosevelt, Utah. So uh, I couldn't wait to get in the Army because uh, I, I thought, you know, that I, I could actually sleep in a little bit instead of get up and feed the chickens or go out to the oil fields at 4.30 in the morning. So I wanted to join the Army where I could sleep in a little bit.
0: Geez, <laughs> not by much, though, I imagine. Oh, no. I, know. I, I, had a, I had a rude awakening. I,
1: I did my basic training in Fort Knox, Kentucky. And as soon as I stepped off the plane, and back in those days, you didn't go right into the airport. You stepped off of, of basically like a, a, stair, yep. a staircase that okay. came up to the plane. I said, get on the blue bus. It was 10 o'clock at night. And I got on that blue bus and I'm like, man, I must be super nervous. It was August, of course. Like, I must be super nervous about going to the Army because I'm sweating my butt off. I, mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't realize what humidity was since I'd been out west my whole oh, okay. childhood. So I got off and I just got, got to Fort Knox, Kentucky, and I uh, was introduced to humidity. <laughs> that, was, that was a different world for me.
0: What, uh, when, so you're coming up through your childhood and you're in rural uh, areas and you you sound like you're very geared toward the outdoors um, how are you doing in school or is there like are, are you a, are you good academically or are you just you're like outside just playing in the mud all day
1: well i was i was a straight a straight a and b student my, my father was real uh, uh he, he actually wanted me to go to college but uh, i just mm. uh, and I, you know of course we didn't have any uh, well we, we we had limited television and everything so I read a lot of books and things like that, but i was I was not I was not the kind of that liked to the, the classroom i would I would rather be outside and get out and you know, I couldn't wait for school to be over, even though I got good 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 grades and everything i I didn't really like the idea of going to college so that's how I joined the army I, my dad was drafted like I said, my dad was drafted in, in Vietnam, he came home and uh, he was actually wounded just before he rotated out. To vietnam uh, in a friendly airstrike and he he did not like the army he thought the army was the worthless place to be mm. and uh so when i went to him i was still 17 i needed him to join or him to sign the paperwork for, before i could join and uh at the time my cousin and i were were we actually uh were on our own we, we, had, we were renting a, a house and everything so i went to his house with the army recruiter and I said, I need your signature so I can join the military. And he's like, ah, I'm I'm I nope, I'm not gonna do that. And I said, Okay, then I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, quit my job, I'm gonna sit on your couch and I'm gonna grow long hair and smoke dope until you sign. <laughs> so, so he signed right away and I i got to I got to leave uh in August of like I said August of uh eighty one. I went to
0: went to the military. What about um what about your mom? Does she have any opinion on the army or, or- whether you're going in or not
1: uh, she didn't like the idea she uh she she thought I, I you know i had uh good grades and everything she wanted me to go to college and, and do other things and I, I i used the excuse that and that i was going to the army so i could get the money to go to college and it's, back then it was called the VEEP program the, the veterans education assistance program and uh and uh it was it was, it was kind of a kind of a, a veiled Build excuse for me to go to the military. I told her I would do my four years and then then go into college. And I never, I never did that. I, I tried. Nineteen eighty five, I think I was uh, when I came back from the French Foreign Legion. I tried going to college, and that lasted every bit of about one one semester. And that's that's <laughs> an interesting story on that. I was a prison guard in Arizona, Winslow, Arizona. I got almost to the midterms and i was working the graveyard shift and my my supervisor said that uh, uh, hey, hey i need you to come in and work swing shift and i said well i'm i'm, I'm in college i'm going to i'm going to have to drop some of my classes and everything like well, that's just, that doesn't matter i need you to come in on swing shift
2: mm-hmm.
1: so i jumped in my little car or my little truck and i went to flagstaff arizona where i was going to college at northern arizona university and I, I asked one of the professors at his class, I said, well, you go to the administration building with me and and help me, you know, uh, kind of change this and everything where I don't have to pay again, pay another uh, tuition fee. And he goes, oh, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. He wouldn't, he wouldn't budge. So uh, the first day on swing shift, you know, I, I patted down the inmates coming in there and we took them to the cafeteria and they all got to eat and everything and about, uh, 7 p.m. uh my supervisor's like well you got to go pick up these inmates and take them back to the cafeteria for their class and I'm like what class and picked up about a dozen of them took them back to the cafeteria and there's that same college professor <laughs> really giving a class to the inmates wow and i'm standing back in the back and i had my hat on he didn't recognize me at first but he could feel the tension in the room he looked up and he's like excuse me officer don't i know you and i took my hat off and i said yeah you know me and and I figured out how to get a college education in the state of Arizona. I'm going to hold up a liquor store.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> What a small world though, eh? Like, wow. What a, just the chances of running into that, especially after you just asked for their help. Now he's in there teaching. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: That was, I, I was kind of bitter after that. Yeah. And, and uh,
0: that's, that's actually what, uh,
1: uh, got me, you know, got me going back, back into the army. Cause mm. I, I had done my, you know, I had done 82nd Airborne, and the Rangers, and I'd done some time in the French Foreign Legion, which was a which horrible experience for me. The, the French Foreign Legion was, was no place to be in the 80s. It was, uh, it was basically po- politics. You know, Francis Mitterrand made Jimmy Carter look like a, a warmonger. But uh, it, was, uh, it was a lot of details and stuff like that. So yeah. I left the French Foreign Legion early. It's called desertion, you know, on a five-year contract.
0: We'll, we'll, we'll get there for sure. I, but I, I would just want to go back a little bit before we get too deep into that. Um, when you're, you're talking about getting into the Army, what made you kind of go that direction? So I get the part where you're, you know, you're living in rural U.S. and you're, you're doing, uh, you know, you're kind of just doing all the stuff outside. But if your dad didn't like it and your mom kind of wanted you to go to college too, what in particular made you uh, develop that drive or that kind of that passion to go that that, that route? Is it just, like reading a lot of books on it and it kind of, well, it was made you think about it or
1: it was, it was more, it was more of a, you know, uh, my, my little brother and I, uh, we were, we were actually, uh, born. I mean, we were, uh, we can, we could remember when my dad went to Vietnam because my, my father and my uh, mother had divorced and, uh, and then they got back together, which was funny, but, uh, my, my mom actually told the draft board that, Hey, we're getting a divorce. So they, his draft number had already been called up and he went to Vietnam while we were, you know, uh, pre-adolescent or preschool. And, uh, you know, we were, we were always playing army and things like that. And mm-hmm. they would, they would do little little videotapes or audio tapes and send it to my dad in Vietnam. And then he came back and he had all these war stories and, uh he they were even though he put them out in a kind of a negative aspect and he said you know war's horrible and stuff like that my little brother and I ate it up we just couldn't wait to for our turn to you know go and try these kind of things or, or be part of, of some of these things that he was talking about so so uh, <coughs> uh both my uh I joined uh in 81 into the army and my little brother he went to he went to the marine corps okay just as soon as he got it, well, he was actually the same same way. He was he was good at academics, and uh, he was all state and football and things like that. And he got a uh, he got an actual uh, opportunity to go to the Air Force Academy, and that lasted about one semester. And uh, he he had a, a I guess he had a, a go between uh, him and his college professor or something at in Colorado Springs there at the Air Force Academy. And, he just got up and walked off the Air Force Academy and went across the street and joined the Marine Corps.
0: Oh, really? <laughs> what uh, in those days? Um, what's it like when you go into recruiting? Like, are you, you just walk down to the office and fill out an application, or or is there any more to it?
2: Uh, uh,
1: back then, uh, uh, the the recruiters used to come to the high school and see if anybody was interested in, in joining the military. So uh, I was mm-hmm. in the high school in Utah. And, uh, and of course, uh, I was in, in Roosevelt, Utah, I was one of the, a handful of kids that were, wasn't Mormon, you know, uh, even though my, my grandmother was Mormon and they tried to bring me back in the flock. I, I wasn't actually Mormon. And most of the, most of the Mormon kids, uh, the boys were, were preparing to go to on a mission, a Mormon mission. So they, they work hard and they, they save their money and everything. And then, uh, due to their religion, they go and, you know, and they, they try to, uh, they go to different places all over the world and they they try to convert others to the Mormon religion.
2: Okay. You know,
1: and uh, it's actually, actually a good program. They got one of the best uh, foreign language programs. they at BYU, at Brigham Young University mm. in Provo, Utah. And if they're going to go overseas, they actually send them to that for six months to a year, depending on the language. Teaching them the language before they go and try to convert uh, people to the Mormon religion. So uh, the recruiters weren't getting a lot of uh, interest from the Mormon guys, but uh, the rest of us that didn't want to didn't want to uh, spend the rest of our lives in the oil fields. You know, uh, we raised our hand and said, "Yeah, we'll, we'll get it. Let's go see the world." Yeah, thing. Yeah. And uh, funny part about it,
2: my dad's best friend, you know, uh, Leon Ross his, his son, uh, 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 and I were, were
1: kind of, we were, we were kind of joined at the hip. We would go out and we'd shoot guns all the time. And we were real, we were real, uh, real into marksmanship and black powder rifles and, and uh, hunting. And, uh, and, uh, it was his idea. He said, let's, let's, let's be green berets in the, and be snipers in the green berets. I was like, okay. So, uh, but uh his his parents were divorced he lived across the border in in colorado and uh he had to go to the denver station i had to go to salt lake city and when i came back from basic training you know we met up right before christmas and everything and he still had long hair and you know wearing civilian clothes and i had a buzzed head like i do now and i said what's going on i thought we were going to be snipers and stuff together and he's he's like oh well they they wouldn't accept me i was flat-footed you know like I, I couldn't go into the military. So. Yeah, he didn't get to go. So. Wow, so, but I was I was stuck going to the 82nd Airborne, so. and I did I didn't get to be a sniper at that. You know, I didn't start out as a sniper. They sent me to uh, uh, because I had a higher ASVAB score, or higher entrance exam score. They they said, "Oh no, you can't be infantry. We're going to make you a radio operator," which I absolutely hated. I hated carrying the radio or being the communications guy. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really like, like talking
3: to people <laughs> yeah, oh, and just for the listeners, the Asfab is the armed services vocational aptitude battery so yeah. it's, uh, it's the written test, and different uh different jobs in the army
0: requires a different uh scoring level so if you score higher. Like what? What would the the highest score get you? Like what? Is, what well, position? Well, you,
3: you get you get, um, you get a it's a it's a series it's a series of tests, and it spits out like um, don't quote me on this, but something like eight different. You get eight different scores for different areas. Oh, okay. So uh, yeah, so it's like you know your your ability to you know,
0: look at a shape and visualize what it is in three dimensions and your ability to do math. Kind of like those personality tests you see now where they tell you all these.
3: Right. Yeah. But this it. Right. But this is like for your, this is like for your, your mental aptitude. So yep. like if you're, so to be, you know, to, to like work with in, in mortars with calculating indirect fire, you need a certain minimum score in the mathematical ability. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so then, uh, the, and then they had the, uh, the, the one that always stands out in my mind is the GT score, because that's, that was like the, that's like the army equivalent of the IQ test. So okay. people would talk about you know, two digit GT scores and everything else, but, um, for special forces, you had to have a minimum of, um, I want to say it was like a GT score of a hundred.
1: Oh, no it was, it was
3: 110, 110 110 110 thank you okay yeah so it was 110 and then um uh it, you know and then so there's like different there's like different jobs where okay so you know if you're going to be a you know in-flight missile repair man you know it's like you know you can have an 80 or something like or you know you're you go into mess kit repair you know a mess kit repair unit mm.
0: and uh you know you you can have a lower one yeah yeah I, it sounds um yeah, it, it, it kind of makes me think of like all those tests you take now where it tells you how, yep. how cooperative you are and how easily angry you get. You see all these on social media.
1: <laughs> well that that was a test you took later. That was a that was a six hundred right. question psychological test to actually be a sniper or to be a special oh, really? forces, you had to take yeah. take a, a, a psychological test, a completely different test. Now this and uh, that battery he's talking about, one of the tests was mechanics and uh it uh like for example i had three different circles and say okay the, the this pulley turns this way it causes this pulley to turn this way and then okay which way would this pulley turn you know mm. and uh, i've been working the oil field for over a year and uh, one of my, one of my jobs they called it worm out there but your your job was to make sure that you know all the oil levels and, and fluid levels <laughs> were correct and if you had a bad belt on one of the diesel motors had to pull the belt off and put the belt on correctly, you know? So,
0: so you were perfect for that one. <laughs> I,
1: I scored, I scored, yeah, I scored very high on that test and they were on me to go to aviation mechanics or, or even in the aviation. I Like, nah, nah, I don't want to do that. I want, I want to be infantry. And,
0: yeah. Do you think you, were you always kind of geared towards like getting right in the shit of it? Like, just, you're like, I just want to be out there with the grunts and running around. You, yeah. you weren't really looking to do like the behind the scenes stuff.
1: Yeah. My dad was very good at mechanic. Well, we, we, you know, we had that, that farm and, uh, everything was always breaking down and we couldn't go get spare parts. We're a hundred miles away from, you know, the next biggest town. So, uh, he was very good at mechanic and stuff like that. And I absolutely hated mechanicing, you know, cause you know, he was, he was my dad and, you know, I'd leave the tools out or, or I wouldn't do this right or do that right. And, mm-hmm. And I'd get yelled yelled at and stuff like that. Like I'm not going to be a mechanic. I, I just hate mechanicing. So, but I, I I was I was still good at it.
0: Yeah. Well, so um, now you're kind of you've done your application. You're you're going off to training. Can you talk a bit about that process? So what it's like? Um, maybe when you tell your family, "Hey, I'm actually going and doing this." What their response was, and then can you kind of get into where you went and what you did for your initial training?
1: Yeah. I went to, uh, I went to Fort Knox and, uh, and my, my family was, uh, and I think, I think they expected it, but, uh, uh, they, they didn't think that, uh, they, you got to remember this was a whole different time. This is not too many, not, not too long after, after Vietnam. Uh, so, uh, the morale in the military was very low, mm-hmm. you know, and the professionalism was very low. And, uh, i think the thing that started to rejuvenate that was ronald reagan was elected president and uh as soon as he was elected president we had uh uh over the 50 52 hostages were released from iran which is a problem we're still dealing with you know in in current current society but they were held for uh i think it was 444 days or well over a year well over a year and uh people people were uh, well, ronald reagan was elected i think mainly because uh people were tired of hearing about how worthless the united states was and and mm-hmm. and, uh, and uh it really it really started to uh uh i guess get the populace back towards you know, the pride in America
0: and, and producing things. Brings back a bit of that nationalism, right? Yeah. Like it, it makes you have that pride in your country again. You can't get, keep getting beaten down.
1: It was economic too and everything. I, c- I can understand why so many people lost their farms and their houses back then in the late 80s. Because uh, I, th- I think the interest rate was 12% or you know, 15%. Mm-hmm. It was double digits. So if you went to buy a house, you know, it was almost, you know, come out of high school, and you want to buy a house or something like that, or, or, you know, pursue the American dream. It was, it was the, the it, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, uh, it was pretty much an uphill battle economically. So I thought, well, I'll join the army and I'll, I'll get this, uh, you know, I, I told everybody that, uh, you know, I'm just going to go and, and get my college. Ed- Nobody had any money for, for college education. They just, just didn't give you loans and things to go to college back in those days mm-hmm. you know especially if your parents had just you know lost a farm and they didn't have a good credit rating so uh i and even even with uh even with my my high uh my high grades and everything i think the only offer that i got was from uh, a college it's called dixie college down in uh, saint george utah southern utah and they they offered me a, a program to study you know concrete you know making concrete laying concrete and things like that and just the thought of and i've done some of that work. it's like oh i'm not gonna yeah spend the rest of my life it's hard you know, labor ankle
3: deep con- and <laughs> concrete yeah yeah <laughs> you wind up sounding like forest Gump. Oh, i'll make concrete you yeah. <laughs> use the <of> many structures
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> so so that yeah that wasn't
1: it was not a good that, that was not a, that was good good prospect so i was like I'll, I'll, I'll go try and i'll go try the army type thing you know and uh and in, in high school i've uh i was uh known as a, uh, you know uh that's another reason i got the, the boy named sue thing because people would make fun of my, my real name you know and uh, the fight was on i was always fighting i was always uh, uh expelled or suspended or, or in trouble for. And I just, I just wouldn't take any guff and, uh, there's always a, there's always a fist fight or something like that. And, and it actually happened in town on the way back from work one time. And I had to go in front of a judge and everything and the Judge And is like, uh, well, I don't know what, what kind of probation we're going to put you on. And I was like, well, we got to figure it out. Cause I'm going to join the army. He's like, oh,
0: that's, that's a good idea. Lord. why don't you join the army? <laughs> so you got out, got out of it then yeah. they like, if, as long as you're joining the army.
1: Yeah, as long as you join the army, uh, we'll just suspend your sentence. You know,
0: ah, huh, that's not too bad. <laughs> Worked out good.
1: Well, well, I said you know, nowadays, uh, you know, you can't do it. It's almost like they're they're looking for kids to be part of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. I mean, uh, these kids got to be squeaky clean, no tattoos, and that kind of thing to join the army.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Back in back in our day, back in my, John Simpson's day, we just uh, they were they were looking for people. They had a hard... And you got to remember, they they had ended the draft, uh, I think it was late 70s, and they converted the, the military to an all-volunteer force. So they were just begging for people to come to the Army.
0: Okay. Well, and your your years kind of line up with a few of the Canadian guests I've already had on. So they, they were all getting in like early to mid-80s. So I'm kind of interested in this aspect of um, like what training actually looked like. So you got in and you enlisted in 81. And then you were 82nd Airborne, 82. Um, can you talk a bit about the training? So what it's like when you, when you first go off to even get there? And then um, some of the processes and, and what it was like being there. Absolutely, yeah. I mean,
1: I, again, I wanted to be infantry, but they sent me to uh, Fort Gordon after basic training at Fort Knox. So they, they sent me down to uh, uh, Fort Gordon to be a, an 05 Bravo, think, uh, which is just the... the MOS acronym, or uh, and uh, it was a single channel radio operator, and uh, all we had to do was basically learn how to, uh, op- you know, set the set the set the knobs on the radio and learn how to use the radio and how to talk on it, and uh, we weren't given any kind of uh, tactical training, any kind of uh, infantry training, even though we were part of the infantry. We were just carrying the radio, mm. you know, the uh, the tactics. Uh, the infantry tactics, the ranger, uh, the, the warning orders, the op orders, and and some of the infantry tactics weren't taught to us until we got to the 82nd.
0: Oh, really? Okay.
1: And, and then you'd get attached to certain infantry units, and uh, and that's you kind of had to learn it OJT from other infantrymen, or they had uh, uh, they had one of the best schools I ever went to from the 82nd was uh, the 18th Airborne Corps uh, Recondo course it was three weeks it was rough training it was a, it was a ba- basically a mini ranger school okay but going going to that school then you learn the infantry tactics and you learn how to you know stay awake at you know you learn the, the the nuances of you know digging a foxhole and that kind of thing mm. you know and uh and you know pulling security and and doing the op order and patrolling and things like that that you didn't learn in radio school yeah so
0: well and what made you go to the the airborne and why the, is the eighty second? so and for myself because I don't actually know uh and I imagine most of the listeners don't so when they say eighty second is there like a you know a one through eighty one why the eighty second like where does that come from and and why did you end up in that one
1: well as a recruiter, the recruiter's like well you scored high and we're gonna send you to to uh to there'll be a radio operator and they're at, there at the map station i said i don't want to be a radio operator i said oh but okay we'll give you a slot where you jump out of airplanes so i was like oh that's cool i'll jump out of airplanes you know so <laughs> that was kind of a carrot on a stick type thing you know yeah. yeah carry this radio but we'll let you jump out of airplanes oh thank you very much <laughs>
3: to to answer your question uh it doesn't mean that there's like 81 other airborne divisions mm-hmm. so 80, 80, it was originally the 82nd infantry division in world war one right and yep. that, that was that that was actually the unit that uh alvin york was with when he was awarded the medal of honor and when world war Two was kicking off um back when he was a two-star general uh some of the listeners may be familiar with general omar bradley uh Wound up retire you know wound up becoming a five star general at the end of the war, but the thing is it's like uh he stood up um basically they they stood the eighty second infantry division back up, then the decision was made that we were going to have airborne infantry divisions oh okay, so they said okay eighty you second know, uh you're now an airborne division, and uh we're going to stand up the hundred and first, and they're going to be an airborne division like that. So it's, um, that's right. Yeah, uh, yeah it's kind of like the, the 10th Infantry Division uh, was activated as the 10th Mountain Division, but um, it's so it it's just a uh, it was just a name designation. Oh, okay, I see.
1: Well, in World War and and World War One, it was probably the first division. And that's why they they have the double A's on their patch. As it was the first unit that was actually. A, co- a culmination of people from yes. all over the country. Most units back, uh, you know, most active duty units and National Guard units were based on uh, regions or states, you know, and uh, most of the people uh, grew up in the same region of the country. Where the eighty second World War One was made up of people from all over the United States, you know, they just.
2: Yeah.
3: Once upon a time. Once upon a time in America we had a very small standing army and all the other forces were either. I mean, the, the fighting strength of the country was either reserve divisions or national guard divisions. Mm. And if you're a national guard division, you know, you were, you're stationed in the state of Ohio and all the people in the division, uh, you know, the three regiments at the time, they're all recruit, They're all recruited from Ohio. And, um, like Sue was saying the 82nd was all American they had people from like all over the United States
0: okay all right so yeah so you're in with the airborne and where do you kind of go from there because i guess you take part in this invasion of Grenada and that's only like a year yeah. later so you haven't been in the military very long before you're out on a mission yeah
1: yeah, yeah. and I, well i was i wasn't i wasn't in the military very long before i you know got Got a, got a hold of a bottle of Jack Dempsey whiskey and we we're watching True Grit and I uh, and ended up in a huge fight and the MPs showed up and they sicked a dog on me and I actually bit the dog and I don't remember any of it.
0: You bit the dog.
1: I bit the dog.
2: Yeah, <laughs> uh, with the, that's,
1: that's what they said. That's what they said. But uh, I ended up having a summary court martial. I mean, I was in big trouble. They were, they were talking about sending me off to a, a retraining brigade in Kansas or, or even Leavenworth wow and uh i i kind of plead i kind of pleaded it down and and uh pleaded guilty to everything because i couldn't remember this this huge fight that I was in so i went from uh from a private first class down to or, or an e three down to an e one or e o u one is what i used to tell everybody i'd walk around i wouldn't have any stripes on my uniform at all and they're like oh, you forgot to put your rank on i'd like no i'm i'm a private e o u one i i'm in trouble <laughs> So that was that was actually 1982, and uh, that first sergeant that gave me the nickname or told everybody what my nickname was, he was just shocked that I would volunteer to go on every jump. You know, and people didn't like jumping out of airplanes. I love jumping out of airplanes, and mm-hmm. I would rather do that than go to the motor pool or or you know you know go do uh, mow the lawn or or guard duty or whatever. So I would volunteer to go on. Uh, to actually go on these jumps or I would volunteer to go out in the field. so this this first sergeant liked me because if it if it involved going out and actually doing army training, i I would volunteer for it. and he would pick me for it. So when uh, Grenada came, we thought we were when i when I got called, I was living off post with a girlfriend. I got called on a Sunday night. The Marines in Lebanon had just been blown up mm. in uh, in in Beirut, Lebanon. And uh, I think we lost no, 250-something Marines were killed by a suicide yeah, 241, bomb. 241, yeah. We were, we were convinced we were going to jump into uh, Lebanon. And we thought the Syrians had did it or Hamas had did it. Or, or back then, it was called the PLO. <laughs> we, we thought that the Palestinian Liber, Liberation Organization had done this. So uh, we, went, we went to uh, the airfields. And that's when they started handing out these little brochure maps of this island called Grenada. We're like Grenada, where the hell's that? You know, yeah. and I, I guess I guess this uh, this this uh, communist. Uh, There's basically two communist factions that killed each other, and they, uh, there were American students down there, which are, are uh, the United States is for going down there and rescuing these students. The C-141s; uh, those planes aren't aren't even in. in the inventory anymore but the c-141s came out of little rock arkansas an air force base there and they had turned around and opened the clamshells at the back and all of us were were geared up we had parachutes on we had our reserves on we had huge rucksacks and we knew we were going somewhere for real and we were told it was Grenada, but uh because we were given live ammunition you know laws Mm. and claymores and all this kind of stuff and of course i Overloaded my. I already had a radio in my rucksack, a satellite radio. It was the first year the satellite radios came out, uh, so I, I'd put way too much ammunition onto my rucksacks. I was like, "How am I going to get out the door with this thing?" But uh, luckily, the uh, well, unlucky, but uh, the, the clamshells opened up, and uh, the, you, you realize then that uh, this was a huge fiasco, right? Because there was no static line cables on the planes. Oh, okay, and the the Rangers had already jumped in that morning, and we were we were supposed to fly down there and jump and jump after them to help the Rangers. And uh the Rangers, uh, the, the the division commander, eighty second Airborne Division commander, uh he said, "That's it. Take your parachutes off. We're going to air land." And the Rangers were called back on, at the airfield and told to secure the airfield. We we're going to air land. So. 82nd airborne actually air landed that evening huh. and started landing those c-141s on the airstrip. Uh, you got to understand most of our equipment was old we had just gotten you know, because of ronald reagan we had just gotten new m16s and the kelvar helmet kind of looked like the uh the nazi helmet from world war ii it had the, the ear flaps or
0: the, the, the okay like it cuts down protect, a little the bit protection yeah
1: yeah, cut down over your ears. Where the uh, Rangers were still wearing the steel pot that you know we had since World War II, the, the, the military or the U.S. Army had since World War II. That's how you could see pictures of Grenada and distinguish. Well, that guy had to be 82nd because they're the only ones that had that helmet at the time. Mm, okay. So we got off. Uh, we got off the plane and uh, green tracers going across the airfield and everything. Uh, we we're so lucky that an RPG or you know, Adishka didn't hit one of those planes and, you know, actually uh, burn up a C-141 on the airstrip because that would have been the end of the 82nd going
0: in there. So when you land, you, there's a, there's fire going over your head as this plane is coming in.
1: And not over our head, but it was. you could see that at the end of the airstrip, there were
0: green tracers and
1: you knew green tracers. <clears throat> the American the American Army used red, uh, the, you know, when the sulfur burned on the tracer of a machine gun and everything. It's a red color. Grain was Soviet, you know, and we got to understand we're at the, we're in the middle of the Cold War then. So everything in Grenada was provided by the Cubans or by the Soviet Union. And,
0: uh, are they shooting at each other then, or are they actually shooting at the Americans? Yeah.
1: Yeah. The Rangers and the, uh, the Cuban and Grenadian forces okay. were actually shooting at each other. Okay. So the Rangers, the Rangers were engaged in, in combat, you know, and there was, there was airstrikes and all this kind of stuff going on. And, uh, my partner, uh, Scott Scott McCormick and tonight we jumped off that plane. it was funny too, because of the load mass we we're, we're heading in there in the final the final uh, approach to the airfield. And uh, we'd all taken our seat belts off and stood up, you know and put our seats up. They were just the web seats on site, and we were we were holding onto to the side of the, of the, the fuselage. We were going to run off that plane. And the load mass, the Air Force loadmasters, like got on the got on the intercom. And he's like, Everybody sit back down, sit back down, put your seat belts back on. We're gonna do this safely and buy the book and everything. And as soon as that plane turned around and the clamshells opened up to the back of the plane, and he saw and the loadmaster saw those green tracers and red tracers going back and forth. He jumped back on the intercom. He's like, get off my plane, get off my plane, yeah. you gotta get out of here. Get out. We were all running off the end of that plane. <laughs> he, he realized that this, this was for real, you know? Yeah. And so we, we, we jumped off of that plane and everything. And uh, that was my first wounds in the, in Grenada. I, I jumped off there and skin, skinned my knees on the airfield, you know? So I had, I had bloody, <laughs> bloody kneecaps. So.
0: Is that the point where you're like, I'm really in this now? Like, this is for real not before when you were actually getting on the plane.
1: But and for me, I, I guess it was my childhood upbringing or something like that. I was actually excited about it, you know. Yeah, like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna actually get some, you know. And uh and the and the tracers weren't any, the, the the tracers weren't anywhere close to us and and uh this was at the end of the airfield and uh we were pretty much at the taxiway in the middle of the airfield. Uh but we couldn't wait to get involved in it. Luckily, that satellite radio that McCormick and I were carrying was the only communication they had back to Fort Bragg, and then up to uh, DC. And our, our radio was the only one that was actually working because mm. you know, we taken the time we taken the time to to do our pre checks and make sure that we could do that and did do this. And, and uh, well, it wasn't working initially because we went we went to the CP where where the uh, brigade or the battalion commander was that we were attached to. We said well, we well we can't get this this radio to work. And I said, well, if we if we go to the top of that hill, we can get a bounce back off the satellite. You know. Yeah. And he's like, well, get your ass to the top of the hill. You know. And McCormick was upset at me about that. You know. So we we go into the top of the hill. We got the radio working. We'd take messages and we'd write them down. You know, on this this old form called the, the four the four double o four. And we'd actually have to write down the message, and then. We'd have a handful of messages, and uh, one of us would get up and run them back down the hill to the, the battalion commander, and, and then, uh, then we the other one would stay there by the radio, write down the next load of messages, and we would switch off like that
0: all night long. Oh wow,
1: all night long! We had the only radio working. So
0: well, when you're landing too, and you're talking about your gear and you've overloaded with ammo, what would you say? Like your the weight of the pack is that you're carrying.
1: Oh, it was well over a hundred pounds. It was, it was like probably 110 pounds or something like that.
0: And how, yeah. how big are you? Like when you're at this point, are you like just over a hundred pounds? I'm, I'm,
1: I'm, no, I'm two, I'm 200 pounds, oh, okay. uh, 210 pounds. I you know I, I could carry it just barely, but uh, once, once we, once we discovered or once we realized we're in the Caribbean versus, you know, the winter time in Syria or Lebanon, we started throwing out sleeping bags and, you know warm weather <laughs> warm weather shirts and pants yeah. and stuff Like that. everything we didn't need i mean the, the whole airfield was just had sleeping bags and and field pants and and uh and the old uh, wool shirts that they used to give you for winter time
0: those things were just thrown
1: out all over the airfield nobody needed those we got rid of them
0: well i guess in those days you didn't have the internet to look up where granada is because no. I, I even had to look it up when i was reading through your bio I was like, where is this place? And then, yeah, you see, it's right in the middle of the planet. So, right. right. <laughs> definitely don't need cold weather gear. No. And it was,
1: uh, it was very warm down there. And, uh, we had sea rations, you know, they, they, we, we'd we gotten everything out of our, you know, go to war stock, you know, for the readiness brigade down there. And, uh, everybody had sea rations. Well, everybody there was there. Uh, it didn't happen to me. I guess, I guess I have an uh, ironclad stomach or something, but everybody was getting sick off those sea rations. So, uh, the g4 i guess or the logistics guys went to the, the navy and they said hey do you have any food because our sea rations are too old they're bad they're making everybody sick so they brought in this new they said we had this new uh meal that we're testing you know for department of defense it's called uh the mre the, the meals ready ready to eat mm-hmm. you know and uh, we got the first batch of mre's shipped into us the next day you know to eat those and uh, we we dubbed them the the mills were decked by Ethiopians. <laughs> they were horrible. The
0: first the first one batch of them. Do you remember like what the uh, what was in those things? Like what kind of food?
1: Yeah, it was chip
0: uh, uh, chip beef. And, uh, which ones? The sea rations or the MREs? The MREs. Oh, well, even the sea rations. What are they putting in that? Uh, well, the sea ra- the sea rations uh,
3: for for the listeners. Those were those were canned rations, and those were uh those those date back to uh like world war world war II when it was oh, wow. you know designated as the sea ration so you got a little cardboard box and inside was a uh can that was like your main meal so for the one that I'll I'll never forget was uh, the beef with spice sauce and uh then you got a you would get a, a can with like um
1: fruit there was a fruit can in there
3: Okay. Yeah, there'd be a, some some had a had a can of fruit cocktail or a can of peaches or and that would that was stuff that people could trade on. Mm-hmm. And then uh then there would be like a uh uh you you'd always look for there there would be a a can of pound cake in there. And then for some reason the Department of Defense started uh including cans of fruit cake. We wanted to get our hands on the guy that came up with that. And then so they were available in different menus. So you had one that was like primarily a breakfast menu, where there'd be a a can of ham and eggs, or there would be a can of um, uh, 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 beef slices with uh, sliced potatoes. It actually doesn't sound too bad. No, no. I mean, the thing is, it's like if if you didn't have to if you didn't have to carry them. I mean, they were you know they they were actually you know pretty good. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: I used to demand. You know, I I used to fight over the can of tuna fish because I used to tell
0: everybody that's as close as I was getting to a girlfriend out in the field. <laughs> 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 well, I was, that's what I'm gonna ask. I was like, I would just imagine they're sending you a can of tuna, but you're like half the stuff you're describing. I was like, that actually doesn't sound that bad. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. The biggest the biggest thing was is it it just
3: weighs so much because oh, yeah. the dairy, a week's worth of rations on your back and it's nothing but canned goods hmm. packed with, you know, you know, you, you get a can that, you know, it, I mean, it looks like a, a soup can, you know, um, it's just, it's almost the size of a soup can and it's just full of water and food. Yeah. That's going to be heavy. Yeah. And that, so then multiply that by three meals a day for a week when you're out in the field, like, you know, when you're an SF or something like that, because mm-hmm. it's like, it's one thing. It's one thing when you're Joe in the first infantry division, you know, occupying a, a foxhole somewhere on a training mission and, hey, send a guy back to get a case of, see, you know, go back and get a case of rations for everybody and they divvy them up. Mm-hmm. But when you're in the infantry or something like special forces, where you're like, okay, uh, we're carrying everything on our back and um you know i'm i'm leaving on you know we're leaving on monday and uh we'll be back on saturday then you know you you start to see why uh why people started doing research on mres
0: well i think i think now too like uh just like my experience would be in the policing world and how many issues people have with their knees and their backs uh and they're trying you know we have or boots now and we have insoles and you got padded belts and you got suspenders and all kinds of stuff to try and help you out it helps a little but um i can't imagine you know 30 years ago or you go all the way back to the world wars and it's like they don't give a shit about your boots and, and suspenders and all these things like you might have them but um definitely not like they give you now so yeah i imagine you could you right. could be pretty broken down yeah. carrying yep. a lot of that stuff
1: yeah and it, you know it it it, it that's that's when i realized uh well it wasn't that at that moment i guess uh mccormick and i got attached we got bumped up to the brigade level and uh we were with colonel Silvacy. and we and colonel Silvacy wanted to move his talk or his tactical operation center to a top of a hill so uh you know get better communications we weren't the only uh type of communication we had the satellite radio but you had you had am and you had high uh high frequency and things like that and uh, the, communica- the, uh, the communication was horrible for the 82nd. We weren't talking to the Marines and we weren't talking to the Navy, you know, unless unless you were at the division level. The division headquarters hasn't got in there yet. So we were, uh, Colonel Sabasi wanted to move up to the top of a hill and we were next to, uh, it was an old Cuban barracks and there were two ZPU-2s uh, next to it, which is an a anti-aircraft gun. Okay. and uh two barrels on it and things like that so it you know it looked like it looked like uh you know uh you know, to the other units especially the marines and the, the infantry units that were moving in there and the rangers they they didn't realize that uh you know there was there was a brigade headquarters in there you know we had occupied these these barracks and uh there was a firefight underneath us uh between some uh grenadian forces and uh the uh 505 which is an infantry unit for the 82nd and i had got down and i was providing fire into the building where i knew that i'd saw the the cubans or the grenadian forces go into and i was I, it was way over 300 meters which is the effective range of the uh, m16 but i'd been a country boy and i knew if i you know i aimed at roof, roof roof level my bullets would drop into that window mm-hmm. and uh a captain came out and told me to stop firing and everything and it, it wasn't really my fault i i you know i i went to it was for years after that i had kind of a survival guilt or something like that i kind of blaming myself but it uh, came out later in the investigation the marine agriculture team uh the, the guys who call in the airstrikes they were on the other side of a hill or other side of uh, the, the base of the, the mountains and uh they they had told these 2A6s A6 intruders that hey there's a there's there's people on top of this hill fire on the biggest hill and uh the the, the navy u s navy hit our position yeah right and I was lucky for me I was still laying in that position you know in prone position in the grass and it came down and hit us with uh with a, a a rotary gun you know kind of kind of uh, uh 20 millimeter thirty millimeter and that uh it hit us. It hit us hard. Everybody in that building got wounded. Really, nineteen people. Nineteen people on that hill. Even my M16 got a hole in the stock. But I had like a you know a guardian angel around me. You know, grass was flying. birds yeah. was flying all around me. And I heard people screaming after after it came up. And I I stood up and I saw the second plane coming in. And uh, I'm like, oh, this is it. You know, we're gonna we're gonna uh, we're gonna get chewed up into mincemeat. And one of the captain inside the building grabbed the radio, and he he called for an abort. You know, and he was on the frequency that, that everybody was using for the uh, airstrikes. And the plane, luckily, the plane the, that pilot didn't fire. You know? Wow! But we had we had a mess we had a mess going on there. And uh, it was at that moment I realized that uh, all the training I had received before that wasn't inadequate. You know, mm, okay. Uh, it, It wasn't that that, uh, I wasn't listening to the training or everything. You got to realize we were a peacetime army at the time. And everybody was like, well, if this happens, you do this. If this happens, you do that. And it wasn't really covering all the bases for all those different scenarios. So I had, you know, I had several people. I had one guy who lost a leg. Uh, We had uh, a a bleeding or I had a sucking chest wound. And we didn't have stretchers. We didn't have, you know, we didn't have a. Uh, we were ripping doors off of the building to put people on the on the doors to get them to the, the medevac. We got the medevac and everything. And it was just it was a it was a it was an eye opener. McCormick McCormick only had a a piece of shrapnel in his hand, and uh, which had swollen up later, and and uh, he got pulled off the line later. And the general gave him his Purple Heart and everything. And his picture was in the eighty second Airborne Museum for years. And I was like. He was like the worst soldier
0: ever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he was <that's,
1: laughs> immortalized in the museum. And I was like, oh, dang,
0: that, how, that's just, how did that happen? Uh, yeah, that happens. That's for sure. Um, yeah. But, uh, well, and one of the things that, kind of comparing it to some of the Canadians is, and it's interesting how you say it's like peacetime, but I mean, for the Canadians, they didn't have uh, any major operations that they're involved in since Korea. Like back in the '50s, so when the guys are going through in the '80s, like if if they even found anybody with any kind of combat experience that was teaching it, they're like at the very tail end of their career you guys, you have all Vietnam stuff. so when you were going through your training, did you have a lot of people um, that did have combat experience that were teaching you
1: we had we had a few left we had a few uh, Vietnam vets left and uh, and it, you know uh, we, we call it uh, that's the difference between a paratrooper and a garrison trooper. You know, mm. a garrison a guy who's raised in the garrison, and, and their their uniforms are always starch and their boots are yeah. always shine and things like that. Versus these old Vietnam vets, you know, who who walk around and you know their uniforms all wrinkled and everything, and they say well, that crap doesn't doesn't mean anything in the field and that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. it's it, it's it's two different worlds, and probably the the best the best uh you know after. After that incident, I realized it was, you know, training was something that you got to take very seriously and you got to get as realistic as you can during your training. Yeah. Real, realism, is everything, you know, you don't need, you don't need safety vests and you don't, you know, you don't need little placards and, and you're not going to get a command, you know, left, you know, ready on the left, ready on the right, you know, commence firing. That doesn't happen in combat, you yeah. know, yeah. and that's, that's not, that's not realism. And, uh, and I realized then that uh, the marksmanship, the marksmanship that we uh, uh, that we took for granted, uh, it it was very low par compared to you know some of the some of the stuff that was available on the commercial market. I mean, uh, the M6, even the M16 or the 556, it's an effective battle rifle. Yeah, but it wasn't it wasn't that effective. For paratroopers, you know, and if you know, okay, looking look, looking back, I'm just like, okay, yeah, you know, you you can you can engage out to 300, 300 yards and things like that, but uh, you're if you're in open terrain and everything, maybe you want somebody that good with that machine gun or good, you know, that can reach out a little bit farther or the sniping program, you know, and uh, that's that's where I got interested in, uh, you know, hey, I, I want if I'm going to carry a gun. Why don't I, you know, even, even later when I became a sniper, everybody's like, well, why are you carrying a bolt action gun in a, in a, in a machine gun war? And I was like, because, you know, effective fire counts. Yeah. You, know, you can throw a lot of lead out there, but it's the rounds that hit that count, not, not, you know, just a bunch of lead in the air.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: I think that the biggest, the biggest thing that I realized was that, uh, no, you know, that all the, all the other peripheries of the of the of the army you know there's i think uh, at the time there was 82 or 83 uh, or i'm sorry there are 88 mos's in the military and i realized that only like eight or nine of them had anything to do with combat yeah <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and just because you wore a uniform doesn't doesn't mean that you uh you you were effective in combat or that you were you were good at combat you know and. Uh, I uh, I started studying more military history there and taking my training a lot more seriously and things like that. After that, and uh, and I I really had a lot of respect for <laughs> like the guys in the Battle of the Bulge. You know, when the, the Germans had overrun the front lines and they took the the what, what they call the cooks and bakers and said, hey, "Get your get your M1 Grand and get out to the front line." You know. Mm-hmm. To, I I feel Those guys even had less training because most of them were drafted, and you know, and they they had fired their M1s, their M1 grands since basic training, and they were they were put on the front lines to stop that you know stop that incursion from the from the Germans in, in the Battle of the
0: Bulge. It's always interesting, yeah, when you can compare it to something you've gone through, and you look at what other people did, especially before, um, like I'm saying about the equipment, you know, compared to when you're going through back to the world wars to what we have now, um, and it makes you wonder like, how the hell did they do this? Yeah. And it was like, you know, those conditions and stuff. And most of the times before even more dire <laughs> straits that you're kind of in. So, um, h- how long were you in Granada for? Oh, we were, uh,
1: the com the, the actual, the the shooting part of it was over in three, three or four days. So it mm-hmm. wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't long. I was actually down there for a couple of weeks, you know, cleaning it up and then uh and you know, hindsight being twenty twenty, we can we can uh pick it to death, but it, it wasn't it wasn't as successful. now you know, to the to the world and to the Soviets, the press and you know, the uh the uh uh propaganda war, it was it was excellent. You know, we we showed the Soviets that we were gonna the Soviet Union and the Cubans that we were going to uh we were gonna You know, draw a line in the sand, if you will, and say, you know, no more communism, no more buildup in this in this hemisphere. But if you look at the operation, the operation was a total fiasco, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, it wasn't wasn't uh, that. I mean, it was it was successful, but uh, it was one mistake compiled on another, on another, on another, and uh, it was uh, it was something that uh, you know all of us, you know, especially later in our careers. We're, we're like okay uh the the communications problem between the forces the army and the Navy and the Air Force and Marines that was supposed to get fixed uh things were things were supposed to get more uh uh the, the training was supposed to get more centralized and everybody was supposed to get on one sheet of music that never really happened it happened at at uh some of the levels uh, but uh it got uh it, it it opened the world's eyes that uh, you know uh, you had Grenada, you had uh, the Falkland Islands and things like that. So we started doing training, joint training with the Canadians, with the with the UK, uh, uh, even even with uh, I, I wasn't part of it, but even guys were working with the French and the reforgers and the Germans and the French were working together because we thought we thought that uh, especially after you know uh, 1983 in Grenada, we thought that the uh, the Soviet Union would invade and it would be a, it would be a ground war, or we were going into Nicaragua and stuff like that. And we thought that, that World War III was going to start out pretty much conventional. It wasn't going to be a big nuclear war. Yeah. Cause, and I think that's, that's, the other, that's the other thing that everybody, uh, where the, the, the training kind of slowed down, people weren't paying attention to the training because uh, after Vietnam, everybody thought in, in the army that it was going to be nuclear at first it was going to be a nuclear war so everybody kind of half-assed the training a little bit you know because they were like
0: even like uh some of the canadians uh when i was talking to them it kind of surprised me because i I'd never heard this from uh any history up here or stuff like it, it russia didn't seem like a big part of our history but any of the canadians i talked to like, um, ben click the co-host when he originally did the show, he's like, "Yeah, I just joined because I want to go kill commies." That was a thing in the eighties. <laughs> I was like, "I've never heard that from any of the Canadians," so that was kind of surprising. Um, so oh, yeah. it's interesting to yeah. hear, like, you know, people are kind of anticipating a, a more of a conventional war, not or, or as opposed to a nuclear war. So yeah, they had a I guess a different view up here
1: yeah it was a big shot on the arm not only for america but for the whole western hemisphere i mean uh, for the for you know the, the civilians the the the, uh, the whole country the population as a big you know here we we won one you know and it wasn't it wasn't that big and uh, the casualties the casualties were low and things like that but uh, they were still real for for me it was they both, you know i think we lost 27 28 soldiers there but for me it was very real i'd seen i've seen those bodies you know watch them get killed, you know, things like that. So it was very real for me. But uh there were parades and things like that. Of course I missed them all because I stayed down there two weeks. I was the radio operator. Everybody else got a big parade when they got back and I came back in the middle of the night and in, in a rainstorm. It was uh it was very interesting. The uh the the change after Grenada the, towards towards training and towards equipment equipment of the army. And we had worn out generators and vehicles and stuff like that from, from the Vietnam era. Well, clear, clear back to Korea, but, uh, in the Reagan years, they started throwing all those things away or getting rid of that. We got the Humvees and, and, and new equipment and new uniforms, mm. new boots, er, everything from top to bottom. Everything was, was, was where we the, the army went through a, a huge transition. I'm sure John was part of that, you know? I know John was part of that because years later we got together. I'm like, okay, uh, when did you start sniper school, and why did and It was basically '85 or '86 when John started the sniper school right there at Fort Bragg, you know, in Special Forces. Before that, we, we had pretty much got rid of the whole sniper program. You know, oh, the, wow. the Army did. There, there was no sniper school in the Army. Yeah. So John, John Simpson was a plank holder in that, which I found out later. I accuse him of, oh, we're we're not getting enough training. That as as that's, that's, that's in one of his books, you know, in the in the prelude to one of his books are, mm-hmm. is uh how I'd showed up and said, We're not doing this right, you know, we gotta <laughs> we gotta be like these Marines over here. You know, I got this book by Carlos Hathcock.
3: <laughs> well, yeah, later on we can get into uh how I my my first exposure to the uh the phenomenon known as Sularu. But, uh, well, um, you can tell cause, no. uh, yeah, cause I, I'm sure we're going to get into the, um, you know, the Rangers and especially, I know Nathan wants to hear the story of the Fort Legion, but I actually, my first exposure to Sue, I had, um, I'd come back to, uh, the 10th special forces group from, uh, Germany and, um, uh, it was at Fort Devens, Massachusetts, which is now closed and. Uh, We would have these NCO calls or NCO professional developments in the post-theater, and you would have, like, the entire, you know, group support and uh, 2nd and 3rd Battalion, because 1st Battalion was permanently stationed in Germany. And we're all, you know, we'd come in there and they would, like, natter at us on a bunch of nonsense that really didn't, uh, you know, help us uh day to day. Usually
1: be, usually a visiting sergeant major
3: was the yeah, guest Yeah, not speaker to be too cynical the about it. So the thing is, we had a real guest of honor that day. We had the commandant of the uh sergeant major's academy. And um he was busy talking to us and I guess inspiring us so that someday we could all grow up to become sergeant major of the army. And um you know, I mean you just tune the stuff out and I'm like sitting there And, uh, oh, are there any questions? And um, I guess you raised your hand. And I hear this voice coming out from the center of the auditorium going, hey, Sergeant Major, I got a question. Why is it when we have a really switched-on team sergeant that when we send him to Sergeant Major's Academy, instead of training, he comes back and all he cares about is haircuts and mustaches. (laughs) And it's like, you can just hear this. In the in the auditorium. Because here I mean, he's like talking he's talking like this to a command sergeant major of the US Army <laughs> and the Commandant of the Sergeant Major's Academy. And uh they were just good. You know, yeah, guys are like, Oh, that friggin' LaRue. and I'm going, Who is that guy? And it was like, uh, oh, that's Subaru. Yeah. And um that was my first that was, that was my first hearing of, of Subaru and then uh, several days later, he, uh, he darkened my door at the, uh, at the sniper school at the 10th group sniper school. And, uh, that, that, that's a story in itself. So you're like, oh, great. I got to deal with this guy, <laughs> which is in some, uh, you know, controversy. Yeah. There's some dispute as to what yeah, actually yeah, happened, but
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's in writing. It's in writing. I, I, I put it in writing. So it's it's the truth. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> no, but that's that's where I got that's where I got in my code, you know, it was there in Grenada, that friendly airstrike. I was just like, you know, if it's if we're not training for combat, all all this other stuff, and, and you know, I I would quote Patton, you know, train for war, all else is bullshit, you know. And and Pat, you know, General Patton mm-hmm. actually said that, you
3: know. And uh Yeah. And because the thing is, it's like uh one of the things we got away from the army, I mean, for years you would go into a um you know you could go into a marine corps barracks where they had basic training and there would be a sign up there like in red and yellow uh letters saying make damn sure that no man's ghost cries out from his grave if only your training has done its job Mm. and to me that always put the you know that was like the emphasis on yeah You, the guys that are, you know, the chain of command and the guys that are doing the training, it's your responsibility. Okay. Just, you know, don't don't stand around kicking team boxes. It's like, you know, one of the one of the things you've got to do is you have to figure out how to make this happen. And that's why that's why in my last two books, I made a point of saying that look, my, you know, the philosophy needs to be that whoever you're you know students you need to trust your training but trainers have to give training that can be trusted yeah and and it, that that's so often the because that's the first thing to go and and we saw some uh, we actually saw some uh, to to give some perspective back in the in the Reagan administration people started throwing money at the US army which you know yeah we needed a lot of stuff but the thing is one of the problems in the united states military especially the army is is that everybody just about everybody pays lip service to training and they all want the hardware they want the they want the equipment they want the new shiny thing yeah and you know so you know sue kind of he he was kind of an outlier you know realize it you know realizing that uh you
0: know, uh, it, it's about, it's about the training, yeah. you know? Well, and is there anyone, so Sue, when you're going through, is there anyone that you're kind of uh, maybe following in the footsteps of or someone that you looked up to, or do you, did you find that you're naturally maybe one of the leaders then people are kind of looking up to you at this point? Well,
1: when I came back from Grenada, the,
0: they, they handed out bronze stars like they were candy. Of course, I
1: didn't get one and everything. And I knew the truth of, you know, most of these guys get the awards. combat i knew that that they were either you know crying in their own piss or or they didn't actually Mm. perform that act that they got the bronze star for and i noticed that you know rank had a lot to do with it and uh, i kind of blew that i was bitter about that for a while and again I, i i was feeling guilty that i thought you know my providing supporting fire had brought in that airstrike which which turned out to be false later but uh I, I took my training very seriously, and I tried. Uh, I put in paperwork, and it was called a forty-one eighty-seven. But I, I kept on putting in for transfer to the special forces or to the Rangers and stuff like that. And kept on getting denied. Kept on getting denied for months. And then uh, in nineteen eighty-four, uh, they I came down on Levy, and I, that I was told that I was going to Germany. Now, or you know, we thought we you know, you go when you come down on Levy, they they'd hit the whole division with, uh, and you go to the auditorium. And, uh, there's a whole bunch of people in there and, you know, most of you are going to Germany or, and some of you are going to Korea. And I was like, I'm not leaving the paratroopers, you know, I didn't want to digress okay. in, in my unit proficiency. I knew that the paratroopers had some level of realistic training, but I didn't want to go to another unit where I knew that, you know, we would be, you know, uh, in formation and they, and they would, they would, they would, you know, they wanted you to look good instead of be good type thing. And I didn't, I did not want to go to one of those units. So I walked up to the table that had my name on there and had my orders. And I said, I'm, I'm, I'm refusing this assignment, which meant that you got kicked out of the army. you got a flag for your reenlistment, and you, you'd have to leave the army, you know, at the end of your enlistment. And I walked up and I said, "Nope, I'm not going to Germany. I'm not going to go to one of those, those leg units, you know, and leg is what we, we call a guy who doesn't jump out of airplanes. and, the, the the, the, the admin guy, he looked down and says, no, you're right. You're, you're, we got orders for you to go to the Rangers. I had been picked by, by name to go to this new Ranger regiment that they were st- standing up. They went, they were going to, uh, you know, first and second Ranger battalion jumped into Grenada and they were going to, uh, create another battalion and a regimental headquarters. So I was real happy about that. I went down to Fort Benning and, uh, I thought I was going to be the radio operator for the third battalion commander. And uh, there and uh, when I got there, there was an admin guy who who knew that I liked to be in the woods and stuff like that. He was basically a clerk typist and he says, I ah, put your name in for the recon teams, you know, and I was like, What's that? You know, I've never heard of the recon teams. And uh, and then I said, Oh, it's it's gonna be a loop it belongs to the regimental headquarters and it's at the time it was it was basically three teams of six and uh an n c y c and a commander, so it was a six man team and uh we we uh we emphasized train and like uh this was nineteen eighty four so most of the vietnam vest guys had had left, but we would call them back and we got the the delta b fifty two notes which is charles charles Beckwith he he had this whole uh training option that he had for the Delta B fifty twos in Vietnam, which was basically a reconnaissance unit. And uh we went through those notes and we we tried we emulated everything that was in those notes. And we were we'd come in on a Monday morning, we'd do our our paperwork or wherever we had, and then our team sergeant had uh, uh a helicopter laid on or something like that. We'd get picked up by a helicopter right in the football field next to the headquarters and then we'd go somewhere out in Fort Benning or or we'd go off post uh, uh, and, uh, and we'd, uh, go to a different post and we would go and, and do, uh, spend the rest of the week in the woods. And I was only an E4. I'd only made it back up to, uh, specialists at the time. And, uh, they sent me straight off to halo school, which is, you know, the, uh, kind of the skydiving effect. You know, it wasn't paratroopers. You actually jump out higher. Yeah. But I went to halo school and then we got scuba gear, but I don't think any of us went to scuba. Uh, we, but we had the equipment and we were all expected to be, you know, halo, scuba, paratrooper, you know, uh, repel out of helicopter. We hadn't, we hadn't, they hadn't developed fast roping yet, but fast roping is much more effective than, than, uh, repelling out of helicopters. But we would get on a helicopter. We would repel into the woods around Fort Benning or Alabama there, and we would stay out there until Friday. And we would come back in and clean up our equipment and take the weekend off but so we, we spent. Is this considered
0: special forces at this point?
1: No, no. At the, at no. This, is, this oh. is before the Rangers became part of United States Army Special Operations Command. So the Rangers were the commandos okay. of the infantry at the time. And, and we were proud of mm-hmm. it. We were very proud of it. And uh, uh, I had not had a Ranger. I hadn't gone to Ranger School. Ranger School is more of a leadership uh school. It's it's you know, there's a lot of people in the Rangers who don't have haven't gone to the Ranger school yet. And Ranger School is is basically a place you go when uh you know you gotta learn leadership uh leadership abilities when everybody's cold and tired and hungry and they 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 don't want they don't want to hear what you got to say type thing. So yeah. I didn't go to I didn't go to Ranger school. actually Ranger school was my downfall when I when I made Buck Sergeant, when I made E five and uh they said okay time to go to ranger school and you, by god larue you better do a good job because you're representing the regiment and ranger recon you know you're the first one that's never had a tab you know you're, you're the first one going through ranger school and i did i you know i uh of course i was hazed you know they, they told you know, my, my team sergeant called everybody and said oh uh I think I made the comment to him, I can't wait to go to ranger school so I don't have to be around you, you know, or it'll be a vacation. Ranger school will be a vacation away from you, you know. (laughs) So that son of a bitch called every department in ranger school, which is, you know, Fort Benning, then you have a mountain phase, and then you have a desert. Back then you had a desert phase, and then you had a Florida phase. He called the the head of every one of those departments, and he said, yeah, I got a guy named LaRue coming. He thinks ranger school is going to be a vacation. <laughs> That's all I
0: said. <laughs> so, so there was a little focus on you. <laughs> yeah. So
1: every every one of these departments I showed up
0: at. Now, oh, where's Ranger Larue? And I had to, you know, I
1: had to low crawl and and you know get hazed a little bit and everything. But it was it was all good training and everything. But I I I really put up in that school. And then uh, then they told me, "Hey, uh, you're going to be the at, 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 in Florida phase." And almost you know, fifty eight days late, like fifty five days later. They said, uh, You're going to be the honor graduate, and Colonel Downing is going to come and pin on your Ranger tab, which is a huge honor. You know, the Ranger Regimental Commander is going to pin on my tab. And uh, then this this officer, who was a student too, there's no rank in Ranger School, you know, but uh, this officer who got peered out of another squad and into our squad, that means he wasn't doing so well with the group he was with. So they put him in our group. Uh, He decided he wasn't going to go with me on a resupply. So I I said, hey, everybody that has a he's like, oh, I I don't want to go out on the resupply to, you know, get more MREs is what it was. And I was just trying to help other people graduate. And so I I I got picked to go out, and grab three people and go get the resupply, which they just dump MREs out of a poncho parachute in the, you know, in those uh okay. swamps of, of Florida. And uh so I said, You, you and you, you and you come with me. And Said, this officer's like, I don't want to go. I'm, I'm tired. I can't handle this. And I said, Oh, okay, Mr. Lazy. So, everybody that's got blank 762 linked, you know, carrying machine gun ammo, everybody dump that out of your rucksack and give it to him. And I said, Now, now you're the ammo bearer for the machine gunner, you know. So, <laughs> <laughs> the, next, the next morning, he wasn't very happy about that. We ended up getting in a fight, and I put him in the hospital, and uh, I got. I got kicked, I got kicked out of ranger school, you know, so, yeah. Uh, oh, really? I got okay. kicked out of the rangers. I got back to the regiment. I got kicked out of the rangers. And then, uh, I was supposed to, I thought I was going to Korea and I I would be the, since I was a Buck Sergeant. I would read off the list of names where all the guys were getting pushed out of third battalion. You know, they, they couldn't make it in the rangers or got in trouble. Say, uh, you know, Smith, you're going to Germany, Peterson, Germany, uh, johnson germany and then hey hey oh uh, uh you know lemons you're you're lucky you're going to korea and that kind of thing well then i saw my name on the list yeah. and it said larue ranger department not ranger department why are they i just i just got kicked out of the rangers why are they send me back to the ranger department which at the time was the ranger school i said well they, they need anybody that's got any kind of ranger experience experience to go to the ranger department I stayed right there on Fort Benning and went to the ranger department. And, uh, I decided then I'm getting out of the army. You know, I I was at the end of my four years. and I was like, "Uh, this is, this is not working out well,
0: but then. So you're on contract at this point. Yeah.
1: I'm on a four year
0: contract. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right.
1: And it was time for me to reenlist. And I was, but the ranger department wasn't too bad. You know, I, 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 I didn't do much there. And, uh, but I would halo into the graduation uh, ceremonies, or I would go out and help at hand-to-hand pit in the morning at four o'clock in the morning or something like that. And it wasn't bad duty at all. And then the the commander noticed that I was doing well over there, and he said, "Hey, uh, I want I want you to I want you to uh, get your tab and be an instructor here at the at the Ranger Department." And I was like, oh, get my tab. Did you want me to go back to Florida and recycle the Florida phase? And he goes, no, no, I want you to start over at day one. And I, I hadn't been out of ranger school no. for 90 days. And I, I looked at him and I said, uh, no, I don't think so. I'm, you know, I'm still pretty weak, still pretty yeah. tired. And I said, I'm, I'm going to get out and I'm going to go to college and I'm going to be an officer. <laughs> <laughs> which is well, which was a total <laughs> bullshit lie. I was I wasn't ever planning on doing that. Yeah, yeah. And he he'd come around his desk and he's like, If there's anything I can do, let me let me know and I'll make sure you get your commission and stuff like that. And I i snuck out of the army and I went I went I was going back to the oil fields and going back to work. You know, I'd done my time. So I'd given it up.
0: Were your uh were your parents still oh, around yeah.
1: this yeah, time? Yeah, I went back and uh yeah. the oil
0: field had closed
1: down this was 1985 and uh, summer 1985 and uh, OPEC had lowered the price of barrel of oil to like I don't remember like 12 or 13 bucks it was it was real low and uh everything in the United States had shut down you know they, the United States couldn't compete with that so everybody pulled the pipe out of the ground and stuff like that and there was really no jobs to be had
2: mm-hmm.
1: so I was reading uh, you know, at the time when I was Ranger Recon and everything, we were always reading Soldier of Fortune, and we were waiting to go on that invasion in Nicaragua and all this kind of stuff. We we'd heard about this place called the French Foreign Legion, but I I didn't think about the know, French Foreign Legion. I'm not doing that, but they had these little advertisements uh, for mercenaries. You know, and uh, mm-hmm. Robert K. Brown was his name. He, he was the editor of Soldier of Fortune magazine. So there was this advertisement for a mercenary and he had to meet this guy in Brussels, Belgium, you know, and you had to go to a certain place called Charlie's Bar. And uh, so I'd taken my last paycheck from from the army and I uh, I got on a a plane and went to Brussels, Belgium and went to Charlie's Bar. And they told me, yeah, we're going to send you to Sri Lanka and uh you get paid down there and you get everything you need to know when you get down there and i'm like oh i need to know a little bit more about this you know before i go jumping into this yeah <laughs> and they're like no 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 i said and this was on a friday so i said well i'll come back monday you know let me think about this over sort the of weekend i'll come back monday I said, okay well i jumped on the train and i went down into paris i'd never been to paris before and uh i hit the red light district and uh and you know i uh I spent a bunch of money on, on on booze and women and then wasted the rest. And, uh, and I I saw this, uh, I was like, well, I don't have enough money to go back home, you know, and uh, I'm not, I, I don't think I want to go to Sri Lanka. I've never, I don't know what's going on there. And, uh, and so <laughs> they were fighting an insurgency down there at the time. And uh, I saw this poster for the French Foreign Legion. And I stopped this taxi and I said, take me there. <laughs> <laughs> that's, how I, that's how I ended mm-hmm. up in the French wow. Foreign Legion with a hangover on Sunday, Sunday morning.
0: <laughs> so there's just recruiting, like you just go to a bar and kind of meet some random guy and he's just like a recruiter for them. Yeah. And that was, that was the
1: mercenary thing back then. And, uh, but you got to understand this was a different time. There was all kinds of, there's all kinds of flare ups mm-hmm. all over Africa. And uh, Sri Lanka was a, you know, a, a small, but small country off the coast of India. And, uh, you know, you still had, you still had, you're still in the middle of the cold war type thing, you know? Okay. And I ended up in the French foreign legion and, uh, I thought, you know, I'd heard some of about it and I, I'd read some books on the French foreign legion, but, uh, I, I didn't know what to expect.
0: So what, like, once you go and tell this person you want to go join, uh, what, what are the next steps from there?
1: Well, you just show up and then, and then you Put, you're put in a holding area or a waiting room until there's like a half a dozen of your or 10 people and then then they take your suitcases and they take you upstairs and they go through your wallet and your ID and everything and they start writing everything down <laughs> and they took every bit of uh, identification I had passport you know driver's licenses all that kind of stuff and the, but I had that ranger coin you know those challenge coins yeah I had one from the rangers it was numbered number 6 you know I was the radio operator on a team you know alpha team so I had mine was number six and I didn't speak a word of French nothing so I I looked up on the mural on the wall this painting on the wall and it said you know Legion étranger you know and uh I said uh Legion ET Ranger so I was trying to talk to this NCO and said yeah I'll, I'll do good here you know I'm, I'm a Ranger I'm already a Ranger, you know, and he's like, nah, I go out in the hallway and sit down, so I went back out in the hallway, and there's a line of people sitting there in chairs, and there's this guy from London, and I, I showed him my coin, I said, I'll do it all right here, I'm, all, I'm already a Ranger, and I said, see that on the wall there, and he spoke French, and he's like, uh, mate, that says Légion Étranger, you're telling him you're a foreigner, he already knows that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh. So, they're like, Jesus, this guy they're like,
1: Oh, I better start <laughs> learning how to speak French. You know? so uh and the same day, the same day we went to the Refic which is their, their cafeteria or their mess hall, and it was in the middle of this huge fort called uh Fort de Nogent, you know, up in the north of Paris. And uh and the the mess hall was in the middle of this thing. Kind of a kind of a small building, but uh we got up there and I got to the door and the screen door kinda of slammed in my face and uh, you know, in our jump school or some of our, our military, you know, you got to wait to be called into that door, you know. So I went to parade rest and I'm standing there waiting for somebody to call me in. And this line's forming up behind me. And pretty soon somebody says, hey, hey, pussy. What did he call me? And, hey, pussy, pussy. <laughs> like, what? Somebody's calling me a pussy. know, no, Looking around, looking around. <laughs> and then that English guy comes up in the in the line and he's like, Hey, mate! He's saying, "Push the door. Let's go eat." You know, I was I was ready to fight somebody for calling me. Implicit, that was that was my first day in the league
0: Yeah, you're really not used to their accent <laughs> oh, at all. No, not at all. So no, I. Are they, at this time is the, the legion a um, are they like a professional force at this point? Because they used to no, yeah, they worked no. before, right? Okay,
1: no, the legion the legion was horrible. I tell people that, you know, people say, oh, you're in the French Foreign Legion, man, you must have some good training there. And remember, I came there with with the mentality that training was everything. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, at the time, uh, half of the people in the Legion were actually French. They weren't foreigners. Uh, but the, the the French still had a conscription army. They were still drafting their people. So these people didn't want to go to the French army because they knew they were getting bad equipment, bad training. and Bad morale, so they would they would uh, change their name and act like they were from Canada or from Switzerland or from from Belgium. You know they spoke French oh, and really? uh, they would they would go in the Legion, change their identity and everything. And uh, they were so shocked at, at me because when we went down to uh, Marseille, a uh, uh, little place, uh, Camp Camp marcelli out of Marseille, uh, you know they do a background check and run your name through Interpol and everything and. We're like you got nothing to hide and i was like no i'm i'm just here i'm just joining up i, I mm-hmm. i'm not a criminal i don't i don't have anything to hide i'm not divorced nothing like that so i I actually got to keep my name you know i i didn't have to change my name i was in legion mm-hmm. which was which was pretty funny because after we did our basic training and everything they wanted to send me to some mechanized outfit and i was like i actually ripped my uniform i had a paratrooper tattoo and I ripped the sleeve off of my uniform and said, I'm a paratrooper. I'm going to the airborne, you know. So they they sent me to the Duzium rep, you know. And uh, well, I got to go to the parachute unit in Corsica. Okay. Go to their jump school and everything like that. So that's uh, was it wasn't big. And there's only like a dozen of us, a dozen replacements that show up down there and everything. And I thought, well finally I'll get some good training because basic training was horrible. Absolutely horrible. And, uh, uh, I thought the FAMAS, uh, with just, you know, the little bullpup assault rifle they had, their rifle, I thought yeah. that was an overrated pistol. So I volunteered to be the machine gunner, you know, and then, then I realized what a mistake I'd made because the, the AA-52 that I carried was a worthless machine gun, you know, and they, they actually had an M60 in their museum <laughs> there in Corsica. And I was like, Hey, uh, let me take that off the wall and use that, you know?
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well when you so you when you're there with the legion uh and you have these people that don't want to go in the actual french army who's supplying the legion then and and like are does the army allow this to happen or is this like they're operating in secret
2: oh
1: well it's it's, it's kind of a it's kind of one of those underlying secrets you know but uh, most of most of the legion is uh well, the other half of the Legion is all foreigners. There was a lot of, at the time, there were a lot of Germans in there. We had some Russians. We had some guys that, you know, had come from behind the Iron Curtain, had nowhere to go. So they they went to the Legion. Uh, you have a, a plethora of languages, but everybody has to learn French and communicate in French, you know. And, uh, well, that's a, that's a funny story because when we went to, uh, went to their jump school, which is, again, uh, there was only like 10 or 12 of us. And uh, you have to do five jumps just like you did in uh, the American uh, jump school or the Canadian jump school. And then uh, and, uh, you do your five jumps and you get a set of wings and you're considered parachute qualified. On our fourth jump, we actually had to pull our reserve to show that it would work. And, that it, that, and my, my, my buddy, Mick Purcell, the Irish guy, he, he actually landed with his feet underneath him. You know, or his ankles, he had his, his knees bent, and he broke his ankle uh, on that jump, you know, well. but they still gave him his wings and everything. And they, here they are giving me my, my French jump wings that are numbered, you know, and uh, all the officers are French. They're from the French regular army. And, uh, they consider it an honor to be a commander or have a position inside the, the foreign legion. And, uh, and, uh most of the guys that I was that were, were in the paratroopers flavor, or they were or the parachutists they call them uh, they were they were foreigners there was a couple of guys that were from France but uh, uh, most of them were were foreigners there and they handed me my, my certificate they give you a certificate and it says it said uh, they abbreviated legionnaire so it said leg LaRue on my my, my certificate which back mm-hmm. in the American army meant you weren't a paratrooper, you know, and here I'd, yeah, I'd had, uh, I had, uh, I had American parachute wings, you know, in my resume, I had, uh, you know, the American jump school, the American halo school. I had Canadian jump wings on a joint uh, exercise and Honduran jump wings. So I had four sets of jump wings and here. My my fifth set of jump wings are calling, they're giving me a certificate that says leg LaRue on it. And I, <laughs> and, it, you know, and I, but we're only three or four months into training there. And I, I still didn't speak very good French, but I'm trying to explain through, you know, a translator why I'm rolling on the ground laughing at this stupid certificate. You know, if you're calling me a leg, why you're giving me jump wings, you know. So
0: Yeah. They didn't they didn't see the humor in that. How long was uh uh training and what um you know, was it very similar to the US one then? From the sounds of it, it seems like yeah, quite it, similar. It,
1: it was. It was still three weeks long. You still had the swinglander training. There's still a lot of running and a lot of pe- uh, a lot of physical exercise. Uh, you, you're just basically learning how to how to keep your feet and knees together and roll, you know, roll with the landing mm-hmm. and stuff like that. One thing that that did make me very nervous if you were a total alcoholic or or you didn't fit well inside the unit, you were uh, you you weren't a good infantryman or or if you had a drug problem they'd send you to the, the rigger shed, you had to pack parachutes. So I came to jump week. I was like, uh, oh, wait a minute. All the, all these losers are, all these losers yeah. are packing my parachute. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That doesn't seem like a, the greatest place for them to be <laughs> half asleep or hung over. <laughs> that made me nervous, but, uh, but they, they, they all, they, they did
1: well. And, uh, and then I, uh, was attached, uh, to, and, uh, Mick and I were you know when we were in training it, it, there's not much heat in these buildings and basic training and everything, so we were all kind of cold and freezing during the time and uh we couldn't wait to get to Corsica and we thought well we'll we'll get in the we'll get in the marine company or we'll get in the the engineer company or or maybe even on the in the the tiered elite they called them the sniper company and uh mm-hmm. we'll stay warm all the time and we'll be in the Mediterranean. well they they stuck us in the mountain company you know the soon as, as soon as we got <laughs> a jump school we went to do our ski training up in the mountains you know
2: oh
0: geez so i was like oh this is miserable so with the legion did you how long were you in there in total a little
1: over a year a little over a year it was uh, uh 1986 uh reagan sent uh some f 111s after Gaddafi. okay and we've and the, the French were very upset about it. Matter of fact, Mitterrand didn't allow the French uh, or the uh, F-111s to fly over French airspace. They had to go out around Spain, refuel, and then go into Libya. And uh, so the French knew about it. Uh, and uh, or the French uh, president knew about it. Mitterrand knew about it. But after it had happened, and of course, they missed Gaddafi. uh the French were very, very upset about this because they were worried about the Arabs, uh, you know, placing bombs or doing terrorist attacks in, in southern France. And at the time, that that's that's how the terrorists would do it. They'd put a, a bomb inside of a trash can, a public trash can on the, on the streets of Marseille or Nice or something like that.
0: Oh yeah, you know,
1: and uh, and somebody would get hurt. So they were expecting a lot more of this uh, this terrorism in southern France. And uh, in, even in Corsica, in the French Foreign Legion, these guys were upset about it, which I couldn't understand because, you know, Arabs aren't supposed to drink. And when we'd get a pass or we, you, know, you know, there's no civilian clothes or anything like that, but we would go into town in our uniforms with that, you know, the white kepi or the kepi blanc. And we'd stack our, we'd stack our, our, our kepi blancs or our white hats in a pyramid inside the bar. All the all the all the, all the uh, legionnaires would stack them in a in a pyramid, and then the biggest guy, which is usually me, you know, I was I was pretty pretty big compared to the Europeans. I would go to the door, and I would stand at the door. I'd fold my arms, and then I would say in a real deep voice, Two the door." You know, all Arabs out. You know, we're not drinking with you.
2: Mm.
1: And if they said if they said anything about it, boy, the fight was on. We would just beat the hell out of them, and throw and throw them physically, throw them out.
2: <laughs> Oh, really <laughs>
1: so here here here's all my buddies uh and, and it wasn't just french either here's all my buddies saying oh you, you 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 americans you're so stupid you're gonna start a war and everything like that and i was like fine let's start a war you know let's let, that's what we're here for let's let's start this war and uh and you got to remember at the time there's was there wasn't very many americans in this regiment there's only like nine of us you know and most most of the other americans had something to hide. They were hiding from something. They they'd made a mistake in uh, in the United States, and they were hiding from a divorce or Brock Robertson. I remember Brock Robertson. He'd probably kill me if he he found I'm, I'm using his name, but he was from the Second Ranger Battalion. He was selling cocaine, so he went jumped out the window and got away from the American Army and joined the Legion, and changed his name, and then uh, over there. Uh, so uh, all the Americans were. I mean, we were just
0: basically ostracized. Well, when, and if he changed your name, like he, you're getting brand new identity documents, like they're giving you all of that. Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. If you do, if you do five years in the Legion, you're considered like a, a yeah. You, you keep that name that they give you, you get new identity and you become a second class citizen in France. You have basically a, a French uh, passport. Okay. And, uh, and, uh, so I, so we're all trying to, you know, figure out how to get out of the legion now that again the, the the training wasn't very good and we figured out well, i figured out real quick that uh you know and started studying actually i was after i was in the legion i started studying their history and i was like uh france has lost everything they've been involved in and the legion's <laughs> the only one that fights to the last man you know knock
0: <laughs> it <laughs>
1: and this this is this is not a good place to be if uh the soviets invade we're gonna die you know type thing and uh mm. the, and uh, they didn't have good tactics and uh, they didn't but they you know they talked a good and they talked uh, they talked a good line and, uh
3: oh uh don't forget your uh your disillusionment with the uh um uh, the mess steward uh the
1: <laughs> i knew you'd
3: bring that up huh? <laughs>
1: I didn't want to admit that I eat other people's food. So in the Legion, it's mostly uh, you're not doing much training. There's not a whole lot of live fire. You do some obstacle courses. You do a, you do a lot of PT, but that's that's not training, you know, just, just because you're running a lot or doing a lot of push-ups and chin-ups. It's not, yeah. that's not really infantry training, but you'd have to go and, and they'd they'd come – Every morning they would come and say, "Okay, this squad's going to go do this, or this squad's going to go pick up rocks in the drop zone, or this or you're going to you're going to go mow the lawn over here, or paint the eaves over here." That's how Brock Robertson got out of the Legion. We were painting eaves on these three story buildings, and he goes, "Hey, Larue, pull security." So I was pulling security. I was watching around, making sure nobody else was looking. He puts a ladder up there puts the bucket of paint up there and then comes back out and kicks the ladder over and runs over to the end of the ladder and starts rolling in the dirt and said, oh, I'm hurt, I'm hurt, I'm hurt. And so I call the medics over there and everything. And he goes up to Bastille, which is a, a town in uh, northern Corsica. We didn't have an x-ray machine there on camp, in Camp Ruffelli. And uh, he gets x-rayed and, and, oh, he's got a broken back. He, well, he was, in, he was in two helicopter accidents in the 2nd Ranger Battalion. So, yeah. It, it, mm-hmm the x-ray is going to show a broken back, you know? So they give him French citizenship and a medical, you know, a medical uh, discharge and medical retirement. And so he got out of that early,
0: but. So he played the system. Yeah, he did really well.
1: (laughs) And I mean, he was out in three or four days and and I was standing around for weeks and I was always going on these details every day, you know, waiting for this, but I was, I was really getting a bad attitude, you know, and. Most of the Americans were. I think there's one or two that were stuck there. They they were they were going to stick it out, and uh, the rest of us were just getting bad attitudes and all that kind of stuff. So we're always doing these stupid details. Well, I got to where uh, I would volunteer to go to the NCO mess or to the officers' mess. You know, and the rest of the Legionnaires they had their own mess hall, which was pretty crappy food. But if you went to the NCO mess or the officers' mess, it was great food, right? Mm-hmm. And uh there was two or three jobs there that they wanted you to do as an enlisted legionnaire. You'd either you'd get these black pants and a white shirt and you'd be the waiter, or you would you would wash the pots and pans in the back and keep your uniform on, you know, and just go out there and wash all the pots and pans that all the chefs were cooking up this these really fancy meals. So I was like, I'm not gonna be anybody's waiter, you know. No hell no, I'm not gonna be a waiter. <laughs> so I'll I'll take uh, I'll take, I'll take the pots and pans and I would just show up and they'd say, Oh, come you know, go to the pots and pans. You know, I, I would go and just start washing the pots and pans, but I thought it was great because those finicky officers wouldn't eat all their food and everything like that. So they weren't looking, I would scraping off all their food. And I, was eat, I was eating what was left, you know, uh,
2: never had to That's not the worst job no, in the world. No. But, uh,
1: I did have, I did have dishpan hands, you know,
0: so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to make sure we get because we got about twenty minutes left, so I'll make sure we get a bit more in. And then I wanted to talk to you about some of the stuff you've done outside. So with the Legion, when you leave there, because um, you see you're there about a year, you come back to the US and you get back into service, and you spend you know the next uh, twenty plus years doing some operations and, and stuff. Can yeah, you talk I- a bit about that. Um, it might be a bit of a quick overview, but
1: yeah, I came back and, uh, it was almost 87 Then I, I came back and I was, I was, I was done with the military. I didn't want to do anything military. I tried to go to college. I told you about that. I was a prison guard. And, uh, mm-hmm. and then, uh, I, I, worked construction all over the country and then I'd fallen off a, a wall and got a pneumothorax or a collapsed lung. And, uh, I ran into one of those range, guys I was in Rangers with, and he's like, LaRue, what are you doing? You're a great soldier. You know, why don't you go back to the military? And I was like, no, I'm done with that. It's just stupid. And he's like, no, 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 you got to go special forces. I'm in the 12th group reserve special forces. He says, I'll, I'll take you into the commander. And So he takes me into his company commander. I met, I meet up with him we go to Fort Lewis, Washington. I was working in Washington state and, uh, the, the commander, uh, Based off of what this this guy told him, he, he was Ranger Recon, he was 82nd, he was a Grenada. He said, "Yeah, yeah, I'll take him." I said, "Well, if you can get me out of here within a week, I'll join. I'll join." And he's like, "Okay, no problem." So he took me down to the recruiter, and uh, that next weekend I had to jump out of an airplane, you know, and I I was hooked after that, and I was like, "I'm ready to go back," you know. So they sent me to the Q course. I made it to the Q course in '91. Uh, this was 1989, so I'd I'd, I'd been out of the whole military thing for almost three years. And uh and uh so uh eighty nine, ninety, ninety-one it took me a while to get through the Q course, but uh I got through the Q course and uh I went to Tenth Group Special Forces in uh Fort Devons right after that. They were starting up third group, which, you know, everybody spoke French, by then I spoke some French. And I was like, I'm not gonna join another unit where we're sitting around waiting for our equipment for two years and everything. So I went back to Washington State, being twelfth group. I showed up to my first drill with a recruiter. And he goes, oh, we're glad to see you back, Larue. Who's that guy?" And he, I said, "This is a recruiter. I'm going active duty. I want to go tenth group." You know, so they they sent me to mm-hmm. Fort Devens, Massachusetts. And uh,
0: just for so people know, like for Q course, can you just explain a bit about what that is?
1: Yeah, the qualification course is uh, where you go for your special operation for your. Get your green beret, you know, and you to for your special operations training, and uh, that's when they had first started up the selection process, and that was that was pretty rough. That was a you know the selection process is mm-hmm. you, you you just wear a number and things like that, and the instructors don't yell at you; they just write something on the board and say, you know, you got to go through the selection, and uh, this was something new for special forces because a lot of guys just went there and their phase one was their selection part, and. Uh, this was new to special forces, and uh, they started up in ninety, ninety and ninety one, and uh, or ninety. I'm sorry, they started up eighty nine, ninety, and I think I was in second or third selection course, and uh, it was uh They they didn't say anything to you. You do you you do uh, individual events the first week. Second week you do uh, navigation events, and uh, the third week you come back together and you do team events, and you're you're rated and all this stuff, but nobody says anything to you, so you don't know whether you have made it or not until the end, you know.
0: Well, that'd be nerve wracking.
1: <laughs> it's pretty rough. I think the the, the culmination event is like uh, they get you up at three o'clock in the morning, you do uh, a twenty six or twenty eight mile road march, you know, and uh,
2: hmm.
1: and I had broken my foot uh, the day before. And i I knew it was broken, but i did it, I didn't know if it was bad or not, but i wasn't I wasn't going to give up and i i uh, I did that with uh, you know I'd limp through it
3: and made it and got selected
1: so
3: wow, that's pretty good yeah and then in the and then uh, and then in the q course it's divided up into phases and it's it's changed over the years but um so then you have a phase where you're essentially uh you're learning um Land nav map reading and patrol oh you attack and then sure. uh and then you have a yeah, and then you have a phase where you get your mos training in either uh weapons demolitions communications uh or medic and then um and then from there then you like go to um uh used to be called phase three now it's robin sage and that's where you get into the guerrilla warfare training and um you're operating within a team of guys and um you go on an exercise where you're like you go out into the the woods of north carolina in a mythical country called pineland and uh you basically organize train and lead a guerrilla band for um, the duration right, yeah. of the exercise. Wow. And then, they then they added stuff like, um, then they, they tacked on other phases like language training and SEER school and, and stuff like that. But essentially the, the, the special forces qualification course, this was the, this was the phase training that you got to be trained to be a, uh, a guerrilla leader in the United States army. Okay.
1: And I got, I got stuck. I got stuck with combo guy again. Because, you know, I, after I got selected, they said, well, what MOS do you want? And I said, well, I want to be, I wanna be a, a weapons guy. And they was like, oh, no, 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 your, your GT score is too high. You got a 127. You needed a 110 to get special forces. I had a 127. They said, we want you to go be a medic. I was like, oh, hell no, I'm not going to be a medic. I mean, those guys stick fingers up each other's butts, you know, and they deal with all the, you know, excretions from all the human, <laughs> you, know, you know, it's just no way. I'm not going to be a medic. And uh, they're like, well, then you're going to be a commo guy. And like, no, I'm not being a commo guy either. I've been a commo guy before. And I was like, well, then you're not going to be special forces. I was like, okay, I guess I'll be a commo guy. You know, so I went to the commo phase and I tried to fail out of Morris Code. Right? yeah and uh they took all of us recycles that couldn't do morris code and there was like there was like six of us and uh, and, uh they said well we're going to send you down to seer school and you're going to be you're going to be guards for two weeks and then we'll put you back in morris code and i was like well i'm just in the reserve so why don't to why don't you just send me down to the weapons course and i said like, well we'll call your operations sergeant back there in washington see if that's okay so they called him and i didn't know this but uh they said, yeah, LaRue wants to go to the weapons course. He failed Morse code. And they're like, oh, he did. Did he, uh, you got a fax machine. This is before email and the internet. So they faxed, they faxed him mm-hmm. my graduation certificate from Fort Gordon in 1981, you know, uh, where I passed Morse code <laughs> <laughs> that didn't work out well for me. Everybody else got to be guards in seer school they put me in seer school and beat the hell out of me and i was like okay i'll i'll be i'll be a combo guy
0: (laughs) well so as you go through all this different special forces did you finally get um did you get any action that you were looking for because it seems like you're always kind of gung-ho to get out there oh yeah yeah this was, they, the,
1: the, this was the one place in the army where they took training very seriously, you know, and there, there was, you know, there's, there's, right. there's still, you know, the army thing of it, you know, you still got to do details and, you, you know, uh, some of it, some of the training you, you, you didn't appreciate at the time during the Q course, but then when you get further down your, your career or in special forces, you're like, oh, I should have listened harder in that interrogation phase or in that, uh, you know, in that. Uh, motivation phase, or uh, all the training is very serious. And, and they, they The guys that come out of the Q course, they're very, they're very well trained, or I should say, they're at the at the that uh, basic training level, to where now you have what it takes to have a, a military career in special forces. You you have you've been introduced mm-hmm. at least to some of the things that you'll actually see and in, in the missions that uh the green berets do and uh i i went to 10th group i immediately went to because 10th Group right then we had the uh you know, had the gulf war going on and it was the end of the gulf war remember the gulf war was only 100 hours actual ground combat but 10th group had uh been given the mission of Helping all the Kurdish refugees that got pushed down by Saddam Hussein out of their villages up into the north, uh, up into the mountains by the border of Turkey. So I went over. I went straight to Fort Devons. and then they said, "Hey, you're Halo qualified. We're going to put you on a Halo team." I, I I didn't even get a room or anything. I, I, I uh, basically uh, put all my my gear in the mail room. And they locked it up for me, and I went straight to Turkey. And I didn't meet my team for three or four weeks they'd been down there with the refugees for months and they finally came back to insulic turkey and uh that's that's where that's where that, another funny story was uh i'm sitting there in insulic turkey and my i meet my team sergeant he goes don't you speak french and i go yeah i speak french he goes oh good we're gonna have a we're gonna have a, a joint jump with the uh the french the french army we're gonna give them american jump wings so you get the you get to train them on how to Don our parachute or how to put our parachutes on
2: Mm -hmm.
1: so i'm standing there i'm standing there you know i you know three or four days later i'm standing there explaining how put our parachutes on and it's it's different there's a lot of different attachments and everything and i said you got to do this you got to do that i'm doing it all in french and i got my company commander my american company commander he's his name was a major king and he's he's like trying to conjugate my verb. He's oh you don't conjugate the verb that way. And I was like, believe me, sir, this is the way they speak in the French in the in the French army, you know. <laughs> and he's like, Whoa, this little this little staff car came up, kind of like a Toyota Hyundai or something like, or you know, like a Hyundai comes up. To this big tall officer gets up and gets out of the passenger seat, and he's a French officer and he's like, Je connais, je connais toi, and it's a it's a French colonel. And it was my company commander back in the Legion, you know, five years before that. Oh, wow. I just went to Legionnaire. Before deserting, then. Yeah. Is. I just, well, I, I just went to position of attention in the French style and I gave him the French salute. And I was like, Legionnaire LaRue, deserter, 1986.
0: <laughs> it's just crazy how small of a world it is, though.
1: Yeah, like, yeah. Wow. I, just, I just shocked and shocked the hell out. Here's my first, my first you know uh deployment with uh special forces i'm running into my my old company commander from the french foreign legion you know and (laughs) and he said and he didn't do anything he's just like i'm glad to see you're back in uniform and everything he's like where's your french jump wings and i was like oh i lost those in a bar fight a long time ago you know so he (laughs) he took he took his wings off and gave them to me right in front of my my company commander from the american so wow that was interesting times and that's how I got to be a sniper because we went back to our tent. We were living in Tent City at the end of the airfield there, which is absolutely horrible because the, the Turkish had the F uh, the four Phantom, and that thing will shake. Oh, okay. It'll shake you out of your bed when they take off, you know. But uh, mm. we're we in the tent, and the uh, team sergeant comes in. And he goes, "Hey, we got a, we got a slot for sniper school. Who wants to go?" And I jump up and I was like, me, me, me. I want to go. I want to go to sniper school. I, I hate this combo job. And he's like, sit down, Cherry, sit down. You just got to the team. You haven't earned your right to go to sniper school. And uh, I sat back on my bunk and I was all depressed and everything. He went to every single team member on that team who'd been, no, these guys had been there eight or nine months. And they said, you, you can leave. You can leave two weeks early. And you, you you grab your rifle and go down to Fort Bragg to the sniper, score, the sniper course in, you know, uh, in uh, Mont Lake. And uh, every one of them turned it down. Every one of them said, no, I want to go home and see my wife. Really? I got to see my girlfriend and everything. And team sergeant looked at me and he says, you're in luck, Cherry. You're going to sniper school. And I was like, oh, yeah, I get
3: to go. I get to
0: go. Hey, winning by default is still winning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I got to go to Fort Bragg and. to sniper school so did you cross paths with john there
3: well that's right after that is when
0: john was oh no i I
3: was i was long i was long gone by then Hmm. i was i was actually in uh uh first battalion 10th group um that i was one of the guys that went to uh uh desert storm with uh tenth group okay yeah
1: i I think it was several months later Well, no it, it it was right after that i was uh trying to think of what year that was it was 91 92
3: yeah because i 92 was
1: wasn't
3: it yeah weren't yeah. you back in yeah. devons in 92 yeah because i left um i left fort bragg in uh in 90 to go to germany and then um uh came back uh came back in 92 yeah, so it was a, it was
1: spring of 92 and i i just got done reading uh the reading uh the Carlo hascock story you know 90
3: you're not gonna tell. you're not gonna tell the story are you or
1: 91 confirmed kills and everything. And I was like, well, I need to go to the soda clocker. And I need to tell these guys, we need some real training. We need to train like this. Marines." So I went knocking on the door and, uh, <sighs> I was talking about how we need to do realistic training and everything. And I was just trying to get out of the combo duties, but really doing, but, uh, I wanted <laughs> I wanted to, I wanted to get more of the sniper training. Cause you know, sniper school is basically basic training. You, you get the basics of it. So I wanted to hang around. These guys have been doing it for years. <laughs> And, you know, just kind of get the crib notes of of how to, how to do it quicker and things like that. And, uh, this big tall guy, John Simpson stands up and he's like, back up, back up, back up, back back out of my office. And I went, I backed up and he closed the door. He slammed the door in my face and he's like, what's written on the door. And I was like, nothing. There's a symbol. And he had, he had a, he had a picture of a, you know, an eight by 11 piece of paper, but there was a picture of a white feather on it with a big circle and a slash through it. And he's like, no white feather stories in here.
0: You know, <laughs> what's a white feather story. That's,
1: that's Carlos Hathcock. I used to call him white feather. He used to wear oh. a white feather in his cap oh, okay.
3: or in his, in his boonie hat. <laughs> and, uh, but I don't want to hear your crap in, uh, the the books a work of fiction, and there, this this cult is developed over the guy uh, okay. over the years, you know, <laughs> and it just it just detracts from the you know the actual contributions that he made, but um, uh yeah, so, uh yeah, so basically Larue wanted Sue wanted to hang out with the Sniper Committee, and he stopped by the compound and um hey you know who do i got to talk to about this and it's like um uh and i uh down the hall we had we had the we had the ncoic's office and it's like down the hall was where i had my office with a guy uh named mike moore and it was we had the training development office because it was um we were in the process of revising the course and um so i'm i'm Mike and I are are busy like yelling at each other over the lack of support that we're getting and uh getting all worked up and then this guy shows up at the door
1: volunteering I was volunteering
3: <laughs> right right you know wants to up you know and it's like and he leads off with you know I was reading this book about uh you know Carlos Hathcock and I and I was just like okay slam the door in his face <laughs> and then, uh you know I, you know and i tell him i said you know read the sign and i go now you know if you want to you know if if you want to do some legitimate you know you know sniper training it's like you know you know come on in and it was, and the thing is it was just like you know he's he's like um uh sergeant larue sergeant larue requesting permission to come you know because it's like he knocks on the door and i go who is it and uh Basically, it's like you know, Sergeant LaRue. I said, yeah, you know, big deal, right? And it was like, you know, <laughs> well, Sergeant LaRue, I want to learn, learn about sniping. And it was like, door opened up. Here, have a cup of coffee. And um, that, was, that was the beginning yeah. of
0: our friendship. Do you want to, um, we got maybe like 10 minutes left or so. I, I just want to make sure you get uh, maybe talk about how you guys work together a bit. And then just a bit about retirement we have the other recording right after. So what, what you,
3: what you really want to hear is about, uh, how he kept on running towards gunfire in, uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah. Yeah. Is what year were you deployed there?
1: Yeah. I did a lot of that and everything, but, uh, I, of course, you know, after, after several tours in combat there, uh, I come back, it was fifth group, 10th group, uh, in, in Afghanistan and Iraq. And, uh, Come back out of that, and I. Uh, they started up those dog teams. I went with that, and uh, I did. I had. I was a sniper instructor uh, a couple times there in tenth group, and uh, uh, we. And I give John. We got to give John credit. They they started the uh, actual winter sniper competition in Fort Devens, which was very cold and everything. And when we moved out to Colorado, uh, that's when John uh, took his retirement. He he went down to Georgia. And, uh, I was a sniper instructor and we did we continued the competitions out in Colorado, winter competitions. And, and invariably we, we, we would, uh, we would shoot all the courses and everything and make sure that all these guys coming in from, uh, from all the other groups or from, from the Navy SEALs or from, uh, we, 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 we opened it up to the FBI, secret service everybody coming to these competitions. We had a great time and, uh, they, uh, and of course every time we did the competition which was in december we'd be we'd be verifying the course in the snow and then the next week we'd get five days of good weather so all the competitors just pissed me off (laughs) and then years later years later after after you know the war after i'd done my time in the war on terror and everything uh pete Gould, uh the sergeant major pete Gould at range 37 uh they had the the sniper school there at fort bragg which had, had really really grown. From what it was when we were there at Montlake. And uh, he's like, uh, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to justify this competition, LaRue. We're going to start this youth sock sniper competition. And I was like, well, oh, that's John Simpson's original idea. You know, that goes all the way back to Fort Devons. And he goes, yeah, yeah, but how do I justify it? And I said, it's, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who wins the trophy. It's getting all these people coming together, you know, internationally. And by then, they've gone international. So we had the Canadians, we had the Irish, we had everybody coming in to all these. Um, mm-hmm. I said we we need to compare notes. That we we find we compare notes to what's working and what's not working. And that's that's where we we for, you know at the time I was in force mod force modernization. I said that's that's that information right there helps me go out and fight for the stuff that the guys need you know and we're going to change things you know so yeah uh that was and I and i remember getting that that forced modernization job i was so devastated i was that meant i was on staff and i and i had been put on staff for life because i sent an email to to the wrong guy you know turned out to be a a homosexual (laughs) guy and uh i that the sergeant major said, oh, you're on staff for life. And I was calling John Simpson, my buddy, and I was like, you're going to put me on staff for life and now I'm not going to be a team sergeant and all this other kind. He's like, shut up, shut up, LaRue. I'm like, what? And he's like, what are you whining about? He's like, how many team sergeants are, are there in a the group? And I was like, well, there's 72 72. And he goes, how many force mod guys are there that get to deal with sniper stuff? Oh, oh well, there's me. He goes exactly. You're one of
3: one, you idiot. You should be happy about that. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> yeah, I was just like, I mean, he's, like, you know, he, he's, as close to crying as he gets, and he calls me up, and i was just listening to it, and it's like, you know, you idiot. Do you realize how much damage you can do no. working in yeah. force mod?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, I mean, you're you're the guy that, well, you know, hey, um, you know, hey do we get this piece of gear or this piece of gear? Do we, you know, what do we want in this new rifle? And, you know, uh, and stuff like that. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, here's your chance to fix stuff instead of just yep. kicking Dean boxes oh. over it.
1: So <laughs> well, we came, I came up with uh, the PSR, which John was mad at me at first. And it, you know, it, it called for uh, basically we were taking a sniper rifle and we we're gonna, we we're finally going to have a rifle that was, you know, had, military influence on it you know i i we had gone through the m21 which is the m14 and then the uh m24 which is remington 700 with a douglas barrel on it you know a hunting rifle and uh i did the research on it and everything and found out how we got stuck with this and how we got stuck with that and mostly most i shouldn't say i did the research i went to the simpsonian institute and say okay what's the answer you know we, we I mean, he was on, John Simpson was on speed dial the whole time I was doing this requirement for the PSR, which turned in morphed into the ASR, that advanced sniper rifle. But uh, the, the, it was the SEALs who wanted another sniper rifle. And I was like, look, guys, I, I represent uh, uh, a group of guys that go out in teams of 12. And we already have four sniper rifles. So if we can take one sniper rifle, I'm sorry, we can do one sniper rifle and switch calibers. Then we could eliminate two of these, two or three of them, and we could have one rifle that everybody's.
2: Mm-hmm. They're
1: like, "Oh, that doesn't exist. The the technology doesn't exist." And I'm like, "What are you talking about? I got one sitting in my garage from Surgeon, you know, and uh, I I I have five calibers. It's not because you know I'm I'm a gun guru or or you know that I spend all my money on guns. It's because I'm a soldier. I can't afford all these guns, so I have one scope, one stock, one chassis, and three bolts, and I can. I can go to Cabela's or whatever and find out which Magnum caliber is on sale. Yeah. And what, you know, whatever's on sale, I buy that ammo and I switch calibers for it. And that's, that's, that was the birth of the PSR. But in the requirement, I had this guy, again, Will Ross, remember that guy I talked about who wanted to go be a Green Beret sniper. Well, that guy got really good at long-distance shooting for, you know, he was working for the Department of Wildlife and everything. He said, you guys need to be shooting to a mile. And I was like, there's no way no, you can shoot to a mile and everything. He goes, I, I do it all the time. I was like, he was living in Grand Junction, Colorado. I was stationed in Fort Carson, Colorado at the time. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to throw a target in my truck. I'm going to come out there to Grand Junction and you prove it. And uh, I, 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 lazed, I lazed from the, the shooting area exactly to a mile. And I went back out there and, and let him shoot the first two shots, and I was I was on the spotting scope. And he took the first shot, and I was like, "I don't see nothing." And he's like, "Wait for it," and then bing, it, You know, yeah, it didn't hear it. I didn't hear it, but I saw a big black mark on the E-type silhouette, more towards the uh, left shoulder. And he goes, "Oh, I can I can get it. I can get it more in the center." And he took the second shot and hit it dead center. And I was like, "Okay, this is possible." But then I went out and I I put in there. Put in the requirement that we had, you know, this this rifle that we we're going to develop had to shoot out to fifteen hundred meters. and We were looking, at, we are looking for more of a uh, a flatter trajectory caliber, right? And uh, we we have been raised in seven six two and uh, or three oh eight, and we we all knew that by heart, especially you know all the time I spent around Simpson back in Devon's in the sniper locker. I I, I knew that I knew that the, the uh, the, uh, the come ups and the you know and the trajectory real well, but uh, what I did on the research was looking back at why we had this long action bolt action rifle, which is is kind of kind of indicative of a 308. You had to lift your you had to lift your head off the stock to pull that bolt back, right? Which that's what you don't want to do is you don't want to you don't want to break that that position that you built to to take a good shot. And, and on your second shot, you had to either hit yourself in the face with that bolt, or you had to lift your head off the stock. And I was like, how did we end up with this long action? When my little brother who uses his 40 XB in the Marine Corps, he, he was also a sniper. He can sit there and he's got a regular action where he can eject these 308 cases. What I, what I found out was, what I found out was, uh, back in 1986 when they developed this m24 was that's when they first came out with a 338 lapua magnum and the navy who was running that program and they had written a the requirement they'd done it wrong that this 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 caliber had to uh be faster than 3,000 feet per second which tells me somebody was mixing up 556 versus a 30 caliber and uh mm. and Army had already army had already purchased all these rifles. They 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 purchased the rifles and the ammunition got kicked out of the competition. So they said, "Well, we'll leave them in 308 until they they go to be rebarreled, and then we'll, we'll change to a magnum caliber." Oh, what's the sexiest magnum okay. caliber in 1986? And that's that's what they said. Well, they're hunting bear up in up in Alaska with 300 Win Mag, so they just kind of. Through that in paperwork, the three hundred went back. Okay. So for the PSR, we well the Europeans took it back. The, the Europeans had developed this ammunition. Well, they took it back to Europe and they said, uh, you know, we'll use it for a sniper round because it's a flatter trajectory. You got you got more room for error in your range estimation with this flatter trajectory, and that's that's the reason the Europeans use not so well. They're going to shoot to fifteen hundred meters, but if they want to take a head and shoulder shot at six hundred meters, they stand a better chance of hitting. it.
0: So I just wanted to get into um, talking about retirement and just what that decision looked like for you and kind of what it's been like since. So um, like dealing with any kind of physical ailments, mental ailments, like all any of that stuff in there. So can you just talk about you know, what, what led you to the decision to retire um, and what you've been up to since then?
1: right yeah I, I i definitely didn't want to do 28 years in the military but uh i got put in the force mod position uh right at 19 years right before retirement and then i i got on this project with the psr which morphed into the asr the 338 norma machine gun uh the bvnd the, the night vision you know the dual dual nodes uh what else was it? oh mini guns on mini guns on vehicles and uh, uh, the MTAS, which was an Israeli mortar system that we used in Afghanistan, it was a 120-millimeter mortar system. Just just a whole list of projects that, uh, that just took up all my time. And before I knew it, I'd done, you know, I'd done uh, another uh, eight years, eight years going into in a, in a 2016. Uh, they said, hey, you've done enough time in force mod. Uh, it's time for you to move on, and, and uh, that we're going back to Syria. ISIS had come up there, and they were taking General. Cleveland was going to go over there, and uh, they were going to go back to Syria and everything. And I, I volunteered and begged to go back uh, on General Cleveland's staff. Of course, I'm you know too old to run on an ODA, but I, I was at the staff level. I, I thought I could contribute, and then General Cleveland got pulled out of it for political reasons. You know, he wasn't. This is was during the Obama administration. And they, they really didn't want a, a commander like him. It was, he was really kind of forceful and, you know, we'll do it the military way type thing.
2: And uh, so uh, he didn't get to go. And uh, uh, his replacement was uh,
1: uh, a a two-star. And uh, I was still on the staff. They were still going to go. But then uh, the Sergeant Major came down and said, uh, uh, this general doesn't really want you to go on the stand. And I said, let me guess. He doesn't want me to go because I embarrassed him back in Iraq when he took the same route in and the same route out and got a bunch of people hurt. And he goes, yeah, yeah. How'd you know that? And I'm like, well. mm-hmm. So, uh, it's time for me. I said, well, sign my retirement packet. I'm ready to get out. And anyway, so they went upstairs and I'd already done the retirement packet. They signed it. I took it down to, uh, the old hospital, the Womack, uh, uh, hospital but has now an administrative building i'm sitting there in the rain i mean i'm devastated i'm just like i just made the decision i mean this is right before christmas of 2015 that i'm gonna get out i'm i'm done and uh and i was watching bo bergdahl i'm sitting there in a the car or sitting there in my truck and i was watching bo bergdahl being walked up the sidewalk you know in the middle of some mps to the courthouse and I was telling my wife, I was like, I've got a pistol right here. I could be famous right now. I could take care of Bo Bird doll. <laughs> I'm watching them and she like, don't you dare, don't you dare do it. <laughs> so so but anyway, I walked in there. I I didn't do it. I walked in there and I told the ladies that I want out 90 days. I didn't want to take a year to retire. I want 90 days. I want out. I want to finish 90 days. And they're like, Oh, you don't have to do that so fast. And I was like, Yeah, I gotta do it that fast. And they're like, why do you want to get out so fast? And I was like, well, when I came in the army in 1981, they asked me if I was homosexual. And I said, no. And then they made me take showers with men and do all this stuff with men. And then in 1991, when Clinton came in, they, they said, oh, don't ask, but don't tell. I said, I want to get out of here before they make uh-huh. sucking the dick mandatory. I'm out of here. <laughs> so so they they thought that was pretty funny and everything and I and I I did I did I think I signed out uh, on my terminal leave uh, first or last day of April of 2016 and I went right to work for uh, a, a consulting company first, but then it kind of uh, we kind of transitioned into full time work for True Velocity, which had the polymer case out of out of Dallas, you know, on the ammunition. This polymer case was very interesting to me because it really really lightened the load for. Not only snipers, but especially for your aviation pieces or your your crew serve stuff, we could we could do it in a polymer case, which would re- reduce the weight about thirty five percent from brass to a polymer on, mm. on the ammunition.
0: When you left, like you found the transition was pretty easy. Like your skills and stuff kind of led you right into an, a specific type of industry.
1: Yeah, for me it did because I've been working ammunition for years, and, or I've been working acquisitions mm. for years, and ammunition weapons and optics so uh oh it was a horrible job i had to go to shot show every year you know the first couple years i'd go in uniform but then everybody knew my name they knew i actually gave a crap and uh i couldn't i Mm -hmm. couldn't go to shot show or any of these other industry conventions without you know everybody trying to drag me in their booth and show me the next shiny object that the, the military needed so we decided we would go in suits and ties and civilian clothes but it didn't work out for me because i'm you know tall and redheaded i look like opie taylor on steroids you know so that they, <laughs> they would uh they would uh everybody knew my name so it wasn't hard for me to transition uh, into a into a pretty pretty good yeah. job and everything but uh it was just as frustrating as it was in the military you know in the military i had to go up against all the acquisitions types and all the bureaucracy and everything on the industry side, it was the same way, you know, here I was dealing with executives and saying, Mm. you know, that it it goes back to capitalism, you know, listen to what the customer wants, you know, that's what the customer wants. That's what the customer gets, you know, the customer is always right. And, uh, they, they, you know, on the industry side, they don't, they don't listen to that. So I've, I've worked for true velocity. I worked for RUAG. I worked for, uh, Maxim defense and, uh, there's always there's always a sad story behind it and everything. I think the hardest thing for me was realizing that uh, I was too old not too old yeah too old. I was still in good shape and everything, but I was really too old to to actually uh, participate. But I wasn't too old to pass on my knowledge mm-hmm. and. Uh, so I'm, you know, I did side jobs too teaching tracking and or or going out and participating as a role player in the, that exercise we talked about, Robin Sage and stuff like that. And I'm always always trying to put that uh, put my experience into into uh, what's real life because we're we're at that same point, you know, where we're we're we've got a whole bunch of people, and you know, the military has always been a social experiment. John went through it, I went through it. In our day, it was uh, Pat Schroeder, Senator Pat Schroeder. She was from Colorado, but she was always trying to make the military, you know, uh, do stupid social experiments that don't really work. Well, the military is going through the same thing right now, and they're not concentrating on training, you know, which is, you think, war on terror was just a short time ago. But if you look at what we went through, when Vietnam, when they pulled out of Vietnam in 73, and we were in there in the early 80s, about the same time. About the same time frame. Mm-hmm. And we're already getting to where the military, you know, I've got two sons in the military, one in the Rangers and one in the 82nd. And one in the 82nd's already signed out and he's gone off to college now. But so saw, saw the exact same thing. These guys are not getting the training they need. They're not being, you know, they're not taking it seriously. And everybody wants to go after the badges, badges or shiny bobits or stuff like that. Yeah. And turn the military into a into a bureaucracy and not a not a fighting
2: force
0: yeah we see the same thing like even in policing you see things go in waves someone gets rid of a a good idea and then you know 10 15 years later all of a sudden it's like oh hey we should be doing this it's like here we go again so um we do have to wrap it up there because we have the next guest we got to get ready for too uh but is there anything you kind of want to leave us off with or um Like I want to say thanks to having both of you on here. Uh, Some interesting stories. I haven't had anybody on to talk about Granada before. Uh, And a lot of the overlap between kind of the training uh, at the same time as the Canadian guests we had on, uh, that actually worked out pretty good. So some of the experiences you were talking about are very uh, interesting and unique. But yeah, no, I uh, really appreciated having you on here. And we might have to do a part two And get you on again um, to talk about all those other years where you're in the Middle East. So
1: yeah, yeah. we need to do a part two because I didn't I didn't get to do my story about uh, how the Canadians helped me out in Somalia. That was that was a great story. So we would have to do that one of these days.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. So yeah, you know, maybe we'll we'll have to link up and um, we'll get it set up. So it might be after Remembrance Day, but we'll get a part two done.
1: Yep. And uh, that was good. Maybe during the Stanley Cup playoffs, so we can argue about. Who's got the better talking team?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Canada always seems to lose the damn thing. I like, we can't win anything, but uh, yeah, no, I will. We'll, we'll definitely hook something up here. So, uh, but yeah, I want to say thanks. And um, if you want to hang on the line for a second, we'll say bye offline. So, all right, yeah.